Good morning, members. Um, I'd advise that the chair and the deputy chair are unable to be in attendance this morning due to the funeral of their party colleague, Gordon Dunn. Therefore, we would need to formally elect a committee member present in the room to chair the meeting. Do we have any proposals for a member to take the chair? Could, yes, could I, could I nominate Ray Beggs? Yeah. Do we have a seconder? Seconded. Thank you. Is, is the member prepared to take the chair? Yes. Any other nominations? No. Can I invite Mr. Beggs to take the chair, please? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, members, for nominating me to chair the proceedings. Uh, it's, a bit, it's a little bit surreal is that there's no other members present in the room, but good to have so many of you online. Um, again, this is something that I haven't, haven't chaired a committee proceedings in some time, so um, I hope you'll be patient with me if I uh, uh, slip up or have to go back with, uh, on any issue. Um, and I hope the staff will, will keep me right as well. So page three now. Um, can I firstly uh, advise members that, uh, contrary to the order of the agenda, um, it has been arranged that the departmental briefing will be taken uh, before the briefing of the taxi operators, uh, so I hope you'll be understanding of that, um, and, and the witnesses have been teed up accordingly. Um, and again, just to remind members, uh, it would be helpful if you would uh, raise the hand icon on your uh, laptop or your PC to register if you wish to speak uh, or ask the question at some point uh, at each item on the agenda. And again, lower your icon uh, when, when you've had that opportunity. Uh, again, it would be helpful if members and witnesses could mic their, or mute their microphone when they're not speaking, to, to minimise um, feedback and enable everyone to hear uh, evidence or questions clearly. Can I also advise members that we have to vacate the room by 1pm, uh, and indeed I myself have to leave at 12.45. Um, um, so if we can keep focused on that as we go through uh, the agenda. Uh, apologies. Uh, and we have received apologies from uh, Jonathan Buckley, chairperson, and also the deputy chairperson, David Hillage, and also an apology from Andrew Muir. Are there any other apologies, or is there anyone else? Okay. okay. Uh, can I also remind members that um, should the committee lose quorum, we may not be able to function and deal with the business in front of us. In terms of taking decisions, that means five members being present, uh, and in terms of actually uh, hearing evidence, uh, four members need to be present uh, in the hybrid format. <coughs> Can I firstly welcome uh, George Robinson to the committee? Um, 
I, I, uh, I hope you'll enjoy your time on the committee and, uh, and I'm sure you'll be bringing issues in, in front of us and contributing uh, as you have done so in other committees. So, uh, uh, yes, Cahill? Cahill, can you hear us, Cahill? Sure, sure, yes. I don't know where it suggested last week or not. Um, to write to the former chair and thank her for her contribution to the committee. I mean, as, as, as normal practice, was that suggested or, or did I miss that last week? That's a proposal there. Our members yeah. agreed that we, I agree it, it would be normal. And our members content that we would do so. Uh, and thank the previous chair. I think we all, I think we uh, verbally uh, did acknowledge and, and, and um, show appreciation, but I, I, a letter I think would be appropriate. Members agreed? Can you indicate that? Yeah. Agreed? Okay, thank you. Um, I, again, we have also uh, uh, had another member of the committee who has uh, contributed during his period, has moved on, uh, and uh, I propose that we should write to Keith Buchanan to thank him for his service and contribution on the committee. Would members be agreeable to that? Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. Um, now, Mr Buchanan himself has been in touch uh, uh, and uh, would wish the committee chair and members well in the future and also to pass on his appreciation to the staff, staff who have um, uh, serviced the committee uh, to Cathy, Alison, Johnny, Bill and Vincent for their assistance to him during his time on the infrastructure committee and I'm sure we're all appreciative of that as well. Uh, item three in the agenda then, draft minutes. Uh, it's at page six of your brief minutes of the meeting held on the 16th of June 2021. Are members content that the minutes are a true and accurate reflection of the meeting? Content. Everyone agreed? Okay. Thank you. Matters arising. Uh, and ask members to, I refer members to page 18 in their brief. Um, and could I ask members if they have any issues that they uh, wish to raise from that meeting? Um, I'd highlight to you that at page 22, uh, the outstanding committee requests are, are still included for your information. But have you any other issues that you wish to raise from that meeting? If, if so, can you please indicate? Okay. No one has indicated, so I, I, I take it that members are content that there are no further matters arising. Uh, can I point members to page 33 in your brief, um, where the, and I need to bring up myself, where the, uh, uh, in the previous week, the committee suggested that we should have a protocol for dealing with uh, uh, outstanding correspondence or, or, or issues for that matter. Um, and the clerk has uh, made a proposal as to um, a line of procedures. Again, page 33, if people wish to look at it uh, in detail. Um, could I suggest that we have perhaps some discussion around it, but before we would formalise such uh, what could be quite an important um, administrative tool for our staff to use that we might be better having a fuller representation in the committee so that it would be something that, that would stick 
Um, if I might open uh, a few comments on the proposal, uh, I'll, I'll then um, seek comments from others. Um, the first stage indicated um, that um, the committee would write to an individual or organisation uh, seeking information given two weeks for a response. Uh, and then if they do not respond within that time frame uh, or, or give feedback or explanation, uh, that would then move on to uh, uh, if they, sorry, if they have not responded in that period, we would move on to uh, section 2. And this is saying that there, if there is no response after the initial uh, two-week time period, the committee staff would reissue the original request for information and advise uh, that the time period for response has lapsed and that they should respond. And again, just seeking, for, seeking uh, an update over a further two weeks. Um, I, I myself would suggest that that is, that is appropriate, that staff should do that, but they should also form the committee formally that, and put it on the record that someone has not replied to the committee within two weeks. Um, to a degree, give, a, give some embarrassment for those who have not responded to a committee's request. I, I think we have a lot of correspondence that is outstanding, um, and I think we should be highlighting those that are not be, um, following good practice. Okay. Um, then point three. Point three is if no response has been received following reminder. This is after four weeks now we're talking at this stage. Um, the, uh, a no reminder of correspondence. A member of the committee staff should, will contact the correspondent to advise that a response has been requested and seek accommodation or failing that that a further letter requesting information uh, that is still not received is uh, in the given two weeks time scale that an invitation will issue for the uh, correspondent to, to brief the committee in person. Now, my reading of that is that could be up to six weeks uh, after we have initially written to someone um, and they have not come back to us. I myself think that's um, uh, not, 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 it's, it's, it's not timely enough. It's, we're perhaps... Um, uh, Certainly, if we were to agree that was a protocol, everyone would know that if you don't reply for six weeks, uh, the, the committee has not taken any further action other than to start and uh, uh, consider bringing you forward for, for a meeting. Um, so I think we should be more proactive of that. I think four weeks is a considerable period for someone to make a response, uh, even a partial response. Um, uh, and if someone has not uh, replied within four weeks, I think we should be um, starting the, the process of bringing them into the committee. Um, now, certainly, if they then, uh, when they realise that we're serious about getting our information, if, if they uh, uh, provide the information, um, and bearing in mind it may take one or two weeks to, to, to arrange uh, a meeting, that could still be six, week, six weeks that they have. But if they, if they do provide that information, uh, then obviously there, there may be no need for, for a formal hearing. But I think we need to um, uh, uh, make, make people aware that we are, we are, we are, we are serious about um, carrying out our, our duty. Those are my thoughts. Um, 
uh, and I'll, I'll pass the other members. And I see at this stage Dolores Kelly has indicated that she wished to make a comment. So, Dolores? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks. I mean, uh, I have no issue with um, expectations being met in terms of correspondence at all. I, I would suspect that it's um, not something that this committee suffers from and I would just wonder about also asking the chair to raise the chairperson's liaison uh, committee just to ascertain you know what's happening across other committees and um, also I don't know whether that is something that can is it through the chairperson's liaison I'm not sure the process in terms of to the speaker you know or to the business committee or to the commission it's nothing to do with the commission I suppose but uh, um, you know, four weeks is long enough, I, I believe. And, and surely, um, if we're not getting a response, there should be at least a holding response, giving us some explanations for why there's undue delay in responding. Uh, thanks for that. And Cahill has indicated that he wishes to, to comment. Cahill? Yeah, yeah th thanks, Chair. No, I, I certainly would agree with the four weeks, Chair. There's only one, there's a couple of points I want to raise. Uh, clearly, we need to look. Obviously, there's priority stuff that we need responded to, and I mean, um, I take it for granted um, we would be getting that stuff within a priority time. Um, and also, probably, and I'm not, I'm not in any way defending the department this year. I, I suppose some of the issues would be we need to tie them into the work of the committee in terms of how we get the responses and collate stuff because we may need information for the likes of briefings and that. So. It's just something to keep on the agenda when we are requesting certain things. So I don't know whether where we had a discussion or whether the officials there had a discussion in terms of prioritization. But but I certainly I think four weeks would be would be reasonable enough in terms of a response on, on any correspondence. So I, I would support that. But just just there's a couple of initial thoughts, Chair. So I mean if anybody like to respond or thank you. Oh, okay. I I, I, I think in my mind, we're, we're trying to agree protocol that the staff will generally apply. Uh, obviously, if there's a, a different situation, a priority, an urgency, the committee can give instruction that we wish to go a different route. We may need to have the officials here next week. And all, you know, there, may be, there may be something very, very urgent, but we're trying to agree, uh, in my mind, procedures that um, enable us, our staff, to manage uh, the correspondence that comes in generally. Um, um, are there any other comments? Okay. Are members content with the suggestions that have been made by a number of members as to how, how we proceed? Uh, and that, that we would uh, ask our staff to put those ideas together and bring them back uh, next week, perhaps to, to a fuller committee, hopefully, so that there is uh, wide buy-in before we would finalise this. Are you content? Content. Content. Agreed. Okay. Right, where are we here? Uh, we now move on to correspondence. Um, is this at page 26? Uh, yeah. Uh, can I draw members' attention to page 36 in your pack? Um, no, it's the correspondence then. Just hold on here. What's, what's it, 36? 36 is the correspondence. Oh, right, okay. Uh, at page 36 in your pack, you have the, uh, the correspondence memo, which is the, the inclusion of all uh, recent correspondence there. Um, 
uh, certainly there's a number of issues which uh, we, we, we do need to discuss. Uh, and in particular, um, can I draw members to uh, page 47, where we have had a ministerial response to issues arising from the committee meeting of the 2nd of June. Uh, can I invite members to make any comments or, or is there anything further they wish to raise? Cahill, I see, has his hand up. Yeah, sure. Just in terms of page 47 and the uh, obviously the coach and the Boston coach operator stuff, the um, obviously the Minister welcomes the Department of Economy um, Tourism Recovery Action Plan, but I mean, clearly not all in the coach and bus sectors in, involved in that tourism plan. So, I mean, I think there's people sit outside that, and basically what they're asking us was for, you know, a sector-wide support scheme. So, I mean, I'd like support from the committee to go back and, and reiterate the point that not everybody not everybody fits within that tourism plan. So, the the bus and coach industry still still are asking for for supports. So, just that's on on that uh, on PS forty seven in terms of correspondence, chair. So, let committee support in relation to that. Okay. Are there any other comments? From anyone? Members content then that, as, as Cahill suggested, that, that we uh, would go back to the um, department to uh, highlight that there are uh, aspects of the bus, the bus and coach industry that would not be covered by the uh, discussions that have been happening in the Department of the Economy. Are members agreed on that point? Are you agreed? Agreed. Okay. Okay. Agreed. Thank you. Um, can, I, can I ask if members are content generally with the actions that have been suggested with the correspondence memo on page 36? Is there, is there any other issue that you wish to raise? Are you content with the suggestions made by the clerk um, as to how we proceed with a number of issues? Agreed. Agreed? Okay. Thank you. Uh, we now move on to item 6 in the agenda, um, subordinate legislation, SL1s, not subject to assembly proceedings. Um, there is a, a number uh, of statutory rules uh, which are listed on page 56 of your report, um, from page 56 onwards. Uh, first of all, the uh, SL1 for the Road Races, Armoy Road Cycle Road Race Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Then at page 58, SL1, the Road Races, Eagle Rock Hill Climb Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Page 60, SL1, the Parking and Waiting Restrictions, Ballyclare Amendment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Page 62, SL1, the parking and waiting restrictions, Balnehinch Amendment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Uh, page 64, SL1, the road uh, speed limit order, Northern Ireland 2021. And page 67, uh, SL1, the waiting restrictions, Whitehead Amendment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Have any members, any comments on these proposals? Um, 
Uh, I'll make a brief comment. I, I, I see there's one from my, my, my own constituency, uh, uh, the waiting restrictions for Whitehead uh, Amendment Order. Uh, certainly from reading what, we're, what we've been provided, I have no idea precisely what, what is being planned. Certainly there is a, a, an issue of congestion outside a busy school, but I have no idea what proposal that they uh, are, are intending making. Um, and certainly I, I would appreciate a, a, a map as to how they propose to, to alter the area. I think that would be useful. Other than that, I, 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 I would not know how to comment on what, what this has been provided to us. Um, would members be content that we would get a copy of that? Content. Content. Okay, thank you. Agreed. Are there any other items there listed that members wish further information on? Okay. So, um, is it just seeking guidance from the clerk? Is it us just to note that these yeah, items have been provided to by the department? Okay, that we would note these items. Okay. We then move on to item number seven, supporting legislation S SRs not subject to assembly procedure. Uh, and this, these are listed at page starting from page seventy. Firstly, uh, SR 2021-162, the waiting restrictions, Draperstown, Order Northern Ireland 2021, page 74, SR 2021-163, the loading bays on roads, amendment number two, Order Northern Ireland 2021, and at page 77, SR 2021-164, Parking Places Disabled Persons Vehicles, Amendment Number 5, Order Northern Ireland 2021. Um, uh, do members wish to make comment in any of these proposals, uh, or are they content to note the information that has been provided to the committee? Content to note, Chair. Content to note, Chair. Okay. Note it. We now move on to... Uh, item number nine, uh, a departmental briefing of the review of the Planning Act. Um, are the members joined with us? Or? Yeah, they're in the waiting room. So we just bring them in. We just yeah. pause briefly to everybody joins us either in person or virtually. Okay. We're all in? Yeah. Okay. Um, <coughs> Can I advise members that, uh, of the committee that uh, there have been a number of briefings from stakeholders on the review of the Planning Act uh, and the uh, related issues have been included in the briefing papers that have been circulated uh, to members in the briefing pack. And I'll draw your attention to page 89. Just pulling up myself. Which... Um, was the Department of Infrastructure's briefing paper on the review of the Planning Act 2011. Then at page uh, 94, there was a CBI submission regarding the review of the implementation of the Planning Act Northern Ireland 2011. At page 104, the Construction Employers Federation review of the Planning Act uh, comments. 
Uh, then at page 111, the Northern Ireland Local Government Association submission regarding the review of the of implementation of the Planning Act, Northern Ireland 2011. And at page 133, Renewables NI submission regarding the review of the implementation of the Planning Act, Northern Ireland 2021. Uh, attending with us via Starleaf, can I welcome Angus Kerr, the Chief Planner and Director of Regional Planning, Alistair Beggs, Director of Strategic Planning Division, Irene Kennedy, Assistant Director of Planning Policy Division, and Tom Matthews, who's the SPTO Planning Officer. Uh, can I invite uh, Angus Kerr, Chief Planning Chief Planner and Director of Regional Planning to make some opening comments, please. Angus, can you hear us? Angus, can you hear us? I think we're having a technical glitch. Oh, we can't hear us. We can't hear him. Yeah. I think he knows that. We still can't hear anything from you, Angus. Um, um, is there another member of this team that might be able to cover? Can you leave a call and rejoin? Could I suggest that Angus might um, uh, leave the call and reconnect, and we might be able to get a better. Uh, uh, connection that way uh, and members are you content we just pause for a few moments until uh, Angus comes back in Whilst we're uh, attempting to reconnect with Angus, can we just confirm, can Alistair Beggs hear us and can we hear you? Alistair, are you with us still? I, I can hear you, Chair. Can you hear me? That's fine, loud and clear. And then Irene Kennedy, Assistant Director. Can you hear us? Okay. Chair, we'll she's just trying to connect to you now. Okay. Hello, Irene. Can you hear us? Yes. We're just checking that everybody has connected okay whilst Angus is reconnecting. Uh, that's good. Loud and clear. And then uh, 
Tom Matthews, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you, Chair. And we can hear you loud and clear as well. Uh, and then, Angus, I see you, you've, you've uh, appeared again, so can you hear us as well? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm at Aaron's computer here, so hopefully that's working better than my own. Is, it, is that working? That's loud and clear. Yep, that's fine. Um, and again, just invite oh, you do for, for uh, opening comments. Okay, apologies for that, Chair. But, but look, th thank you for the invitation uh, to brief the committee uh, today on the review of the implementation of the Planning Act, um, together with the findings that um, have emerged from our recent call from evidence. We really do welcome the opportunity to engage today and hear members' thoughts on this um, uh, important subject area. What I propose to do is, is briefly set out the wider context and then talk specifically about the review, particularly the findings which have emerged, just to give you a sense of those. Um, and we would then be really happy to hear the committee's thoughts on those issues um, and, and, and what priority we would attach to some of those issues and answer any questions that you may have. So the committee will know that the Planning Act um, provided the legislative basis for the reform um, and transfer of the Northern Ireland planning system. The reforms were comprehensive, impacting on every aspect of planning, including how development plans are drawn up, how development proposals and applications are managed, and the way in which these functions are delivered. The key reform changes related to um, the complete overhaul and redesign of the development plan and development management systems which aimed to improve its efficiency and effectiveness. Significant changes were also made uh, in relation to planning appeals and enforcement. Overall, the aim was to create a planning system that was quicker, clearer, and more accessible. The Act also gave effect to local government reform changes, which transferred the majority of planning functions and decision-making responsibilities from um, uh, the department um, to councils. This was designed to make planning more locally accountable, giving local politicians the opportunity to shape the areas within which they are elected. The Act therefore established the framework for a reformed and transferred planning system, which is supported with a significant and comprehensive programme of subordinate legislation and guidance. The Committee will be very familiar with the background and context to the review of the implementation of the Planning Act, um, as required by Section 228 of the Act and the associated review regulations, which have gone through the Committee together with the issuing of a call for evidence in February 2021 to help inform the review. From the outset of the review process, the Department um, has been clear that it is not envisaged as a fundamental root and branch review of the overall two-year planning system um, um, or the principles behind those provisions. It, it's, it is still relatively early days in the delivery of the new system compared with other jurisdictions. However, the Minister is keen to look at how the provisions of the Act are working in practice whether there are any changes that could be implemented to further improve the system for all stakeholders, including councils, developers, and the wider public, not just in planning decisions, but also in the delivery of local development plans, which will provide certainty for the longer term. This may not always require legislative change. The call for evidence sought to target and engage with key stakeholders in the planning system, including councils, statutory consultees, professional bodies, community, business, and environmental interests. However, it was open to anyone to respond. The questions tabled in the call for evidence paper were structured within the context of the terms of the review set out in the associated review uh, regulations. Just as a reminder, those are to consider the objectives intended to be achieved by the Planning Act, assess the extent to which those objectives have been achieved, 
and assess whether it's appropriate to retain, amend or repeal any of the provisions of the Planning Act or subordinate legislation made under the Act in order to achieve those objectives. Whilst the Department welcomed comments on any aspect of the Act, it was particularly keen to hear views on those provisions covering local development plans, planning control um, and additional planning control and also enforcement. The call for evidence was initially proposed over a four-week period. However, following several requests from a number of stakeholders, particularly local councils, uh, the department was content to extend that period for a further four weeks, and it ended on the 15th of April. We've received um, 55 um, detailed, um, complex and, and voluminous, as you can imagine, responses from a wide range of stakeholders. All 11 local councils responded, including contributions from NILGA, the heads of planning, renewables and electricity infrastructure sectors, uh, business and industry representatives, individuals, political parties, environmental NGOs, community interests, housing bodies, um, and also private uh, planning uh, practices. Uh, Minister Mallon also wrote separately to Minister Long and Minister Hardy seeking their uh, comments uh, given the elements of the Planning Act which are um, their responsibility. The broad swathe of respondents um, has ensured that differing perspectives have been offered on the overall outworking of the planning system since transfer, together with differing suggestions on how, in their view, aspects of the system could be better improved. Um, following consideration of the responses, what is apparent is that the scope of comments has ranged from the, the very micro detail, like altering sort of words, in particular regulations and legislation, to the very macro, um, seeking much more fundamental review of the planning system, including the local development plan preparation process. Um, it also attracted comments on various matters which are outside the scope of the review, including, for instance, um, establishment of a planning regulator and infrastructure commission. Nonetheless, the department has sought to identify and summarise emerging issues, themes and themes raised by stakeholders. Analysis has shown that almost two-thirds of the provisions within the Planning Act, um, 162 sections of it, have not been remarked upon. Um, and from which the department would draw the conclusion that con contributors are content that these should be retained as structured. In particular, no substantive comments were made in regards to um, Part 7, Part 8, 9, 11 and 15 of, uh, of, of the Act. As has been anticipated, the greater number of comments have been reserved for those parts of the Act dealing with local development plans, planning control um, and additional planning control. Uh, and then enforcement as well, uh, including the associated subordinate legislation. Uh, to a lesser extent, there were some comments as well on part one, which is to do with the functions of the department, part six on compensation, part 10 on assessment of council performance, part 12, correction of errors, and part 13, financial provisions, and part 14, miscellaneous and general provisions. So a number of broad themes have emerged from the analysis of responses to the call for evidence. These include calls to streamline and address what are considered to be obstacles in local development plan making. Many concerns were raised on the time it is taking to bring forward local council development plans, which means new plans are not in place to provide the certainty and strategic direction needed for developers in the wider community. Uh, councils and others see the multi-stage two part preparation process is complex and protracted, facing a significant burden of requirements on councils. Consultation and advertising requirements in particular um, were highlighted as a, as a major issue. 
For example, many councils are of the view that the list of statutory consultation bodies in plan making is too wide ranging to consult at every stage and suggest that it would be better left to the discretion of the council to filter and tailor um, the consultation list and only maintain contact with those they think would have a continuing interest in the, in the council's plan preparations. Further suggestions have been made to streamline various stages, stages of the plan preparation process. There have also been calls for quicker and more streamlined decision taking on planning applications um, and for measures to address what they consider to be obstacles at various um, stages, pre-application, consultation and pre-determination. For example, there was popular support for the introduction of validation checklists, permitting councils to require applications to be accompanied by such additional information and documentation as the council would specify. A number of responses suggested amendments should be made to restrict revised submissions and the submission of late information during the processing of planning applications. Delays in receiving responses from statutory consultees also remains a high concern uh, for developers and councils, and many consider a review of the statutory performance targets and the categorization of applications should be undertaken. Some respondents also consider that predetermination hearings should be discretionary and that councils are best placed to decide the predetermination hearing would add value to the decision-making process, particularly where the application had already been subject to planning committee consideration and discussion. An area which received widespread support was the need to better utilize digitization across the planning system. This included, for example, facilitating online submission of planning applications, making local development plan uh, documents and other papers available online for inspection and comment. Uh, clearly, the current pandemic um, has brought uh, this issue to the fore. Another issue raised was the need for a review of planning application and advertising requirements. For example, some respondents called for the replacement of the costly print advertising in favour of online notification and also um, the use of site notices. Um, there were also calls to uplift and broaden the scope of planning fees um, to better match the cost of processing cases. Um, calls to for greater clarity in the role of the department uh, in both plan making and decision taking uh, and indeed in enforcement. Uh, some respondents also wished to see greater and more regular use of powers to assess a council's performance and for the planning system to take account of other government strategies, um, on, for example, climate, environment and energy, etc. There were also uh, calls for greater powers to be given to councils, particularly in relation to conservation areas and in relation to trees, and for the commencement of the provisions relating to the review of old minerals permissions. Finally, some respondents wished to see green infrastructure proposals prioritised in post-COVID recovery and measures to future-proof planning against potential emergencies, for example, extending extant planning permissions uh, and suspending in-person engagement. The department will continue to assess the wide-ranging responses to the call for evidence and give careful consideration to the proposals which have emerged. These will be considered by the Minister to determine whether any suggested amendment, retention, repeal of associated provisions would assist in better achieving the objectives of the Act. 
In addition, it will be necessary to determine whether changes, if implemented, <coughs> would require amendment to primary um, support or subordinate legislation, or could it be um, affected through guidance or other means? Uh, the review report will also reflect on any potential legislative amendment which may arise from parallel work uh, ongoing in the department to improve the planning system through, for example, the planning forum and the planning engagement partnership. Members will be aware the planning forum is a cross-government group working in collaboration with central and local government to focus on improving processes and timeframes uh, for processing major and economically significant applications. And the planning engagement partnership set up um, at the end of last year is looking at how to enhance the quality and depth of community engagement in the planning process um, at both regional and local levels and to help to improve the planning system experience for users. Um, the department will be providing a briefing on the partnership uh, following summer recess to the committee. Um, furthermore, you're also aware of the ongoing review of the planning system by the Northern Ireland Audit Office, which may also highlight issues uh, to be considered as part of the, the review of the Act. Um, a timeline uh, for bringing forward any legislative amendments um, that, that emerge from the review will also be considered and included in the review report. Any legislative change, um, of course, can only be taken forward in line with ministerial priorities and in accordance with established policy-making best practice, including, of course, further engagement um, with the committee. Uh, so, th thank you, Chair. Um, and and I, know, I know there's quite a lot in there, and um, there's a heck of a lot more in, in, in the 55 submissions uh, on this, but I hope it does give you a sort of a, a flavour um, of, of the current position and the, the, the issues that are emerging. I'm very happy to hear the committee's thoughts um, on, on the issues that we need to consider in the review um, and answer any questions uh, that, that you may have. Thank you. Thank, thank you for that. Uh, I see there's considerable interest from our members who are present. I'll, I'll open with a, a comment and a, a question around uh, local development planning. Um, certainly, uh, there does need to be joined up government and the absence of wastewater treatment capacity in many areas is frustrating any planning process. So that's a sort of a general comment. I realise it's outside of your, your remit in this, but nevertheless, it's an issue that does need to be dealt with. Um, in, in terms of the local development plans, um, I previously as a councillor was involved in the Belfast Metropolitan Area Plan and I think it started around 2004-2005 and it, it took a decade to sort of um, firm up and then obviously there was court actions and, and ongoing difficulties from that and this new process um, was meant to be much speedier. Uh, more nimbler, uh, yet the local development plans that the councils, uh, the current councils, uh, are underway with. Um, preparation started in 2015. That's almost six years ago, and I don't think any council has produced a plan as of yet that's been formally finalised. Um, so, so my question is, what is going wrong that our planning process uh, and in, in developing local area plans is taking so long uh, and it, in doing so it risks being out of date by the time it's finalised. Uh, I understand it was meant to be a much speedier process and then uh, iterations almost start immediately to keep it refreshed. Uh, so have you identified what's gone wrong and how can it be improved? 
Chair. Um, oh. I was just going to say, Chair, if I'm going to pass you over to Alistair, who, who deals with our kind of plan scrutiny side uh, of things. Okay, th thank you, Chair. Um, I think in relation to, to the question, it's, it's a good one to ask and one that we're always, you know, pondering our, ourselves. And I think uh, the responses that we've received to to Angus's work in, in relation to, to the review of the Act is something that we're going to have to take on board to see whether those perceptions are coming from and see what we can improve. But I think in terms of the system, if we go back, we had a completely different planning system put in place. So I think to a degree, the councils and ourselves and everybody involved has had to get used and involved with that new system, trying to figure out how that works and the balance of relationships. Um, to me, that, that would be possibly one area of delay uh, that has occurred. The other is that the councils would have found themselves very much in a position where they're having to start a local plan developments from scratch. And again, to agree that takes time to do, time to get used of, used to. So I would say there, there's a number of reasons there. And I think as we go through the system, we're going through it for the first time. It's a, a very new system. And I think we've all, to, to some degree, had to see what's coming out of the mist at us. When we get to see a problem, we then move to, to address that because we've, all of us have no you know, case law or, or experience of going through the system before, so we're all coming to it new. So um, very much, yes, I think we would all wish that um, things ha had moved faster. Uh, and I think we've got to keep looking at to see what ways, as we go through the system, we can tweak it to improve it as it stands at the moment. And certainly I would hope that as we do get through the system, we would be able to, to speed things up. Uh, and certainly we're starting to see a number of plans coming through to us in terms of the strategic policy statements. Uh, Belfast has been now through its uh, independent examination and will be awaiting for the Planning Appeals Commission to come back to us in relation to that. Um, probably sometime uh, this autumn. And we've also put through Fermanagh and Oma plans and um, Antrim and Newton Abbey's plans to the PAC, uh, also so that they can start the process towards gearing up for independent examination. And we, we have a number of other plans with us, which we're now looking at to, to see whether those can also go forward to, to examination. Um, it's uh, Mid-Ulster in, in there, uh, Lisburn and Castlereagh uh, as well. So what we're, so while we're making progress, yeah, I, I think we need to keep our, our eyes and uh, ears open and see, you know, what the, the outcome of, of this review is going to bring us. Okay. Thanks for that. Just a brief follow-up. Um, so uh, you haven't, by the sound of things, you haven't identified any failings in the actual planning act. Then you think it's more process? Would that be correct? So, Chair, certainly from the view that I'm coming from, where we're responsible for for the oversight and the consultation of the act, it's largely that that consultation. I think we also have to give 
go back to you know what the councils are telling us that there's things in there that that could be sped up i think we do do have to look at that uh for example they, they've mentioned the, the number of consultation responses and so on that, that they have to do uh, advertising and things like that so i think there, there are things there that we do need to look at because certainly that's a, their perception their experience of running through that system um and, and there might well be things in there that uh, we may be able to to change or or tweak uh, in order to take that forward okay thanks uh coming uh, question now from cattle please Th thank you chair and angus and alistair is very welcome um just honest just and obviously people are a bit disappointed there wasn't a root and branch review you know what i mean obviously some members have mentioned well but outside of that um see in terms of some of the things and I've, I've looked through the emergent themes and actually it's not surprising when you see them uh, those things pop up but it's more about process and procedures as opposed to 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 major change which some people might have wanted to see but see in terms of some of the stuff that um that cropped up that said outside the terms of review can you comment on that i mean i'll give you an example the likes of of PPS 21 and, and rural development, you know, I mean, development in the countryside, issues like that. Has has it raised the side on any other issues that you'd like to comment on that, that sits outside the review that you may consider um, that, that might sit within the report itself? Well, um, um, Cal, we, we, the, there are things, you're quite right, that have emerged, I think, um, which are probably outside the, the, the scope of, of the review, and, and that's a very good example. Um, comments about um, development in the countryside, which is really a planning policy issue. Um, but I mean, we're we're not going to ignore those things. We are still, um, you know, there's a, there's a different team in the department working away on, on, on policy issues, and um, you know, those those comments will feed through in, into that, um, and indeed into other aspects of the work of of the department and our team. You know, um, when people have raised those other issues, so. It might, they may not feature. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to handle those in the in the actual final report. Um, you know, we, we may we may reference them and sort of say, you know, why they're outside the review. You know, they're being considered and dealt with in another way or by another by another area or, or something like that. Um, but we do have to, I think, sort of careful to keep to the the, the terms of the review that that, that, that we all agreed um, and, and that it's there in the, in the legislation. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. No. Please. No, it's been raised with that. But I have another couple of key points I want to make. It. Clearly, the CBI submission talked about the length of time of the area plans, the local event, and, and the suggested independent working group. I mean, in, in terms of system that process, is there any consideration uh, from yourselves as a department in looking at that, um, following that suggestion from CBI? Well, we, I mean, I suppose the, 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 the terms of the review were very much um, focused on the department. There's a requirement that the department undertakes a review. So um, having said that, um, you know, the CBI have made that suggestion as maybe something that we should consider, um, you know, looking at, at the planning system and we will, we will give it consideration and we don't want to, um, you know, 
uh, you know, introduce a whole lot of new processes, I suppose, but it's not something we're going to ignore, um, you know, and if we think there would be value, and we've done that before, where we've, you know, got independent perspectives in on different aspects of the planning system, and, um, you know, there may be merit in doing that in, in, in some areas, who knows, but um, it's certainly something we will consider. No, and I, I just no, appreciate that. I asked in the context, was, we've had this discussion before where we, we would have needed expertise in, in certain things, you know, certain fields. And I asked it really in, in that context. Just two, two final points, Chair. Um, obviously, you mentioned the, the review of the old mineral permissions. And I mean, in, in terms of submissions, um, it's in the emerging theme there. In terms of the number of submissions in relation to that, I mean, um, can you quantify exactly and, and update us on what, what the submissions were in relation to that? And my, my final point would be in terms of the review report. When, when we as a committee get sight of that report? Um, um, well, we, 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 the, the plan at the minute, the aim at the minute is, you know, to engage with the Minister over the summer and continue to sort of assess all the issues that come out, including the issues we, we, we hear today, obviously, um, with a view to trying to have the report completed towards the end of the year. Um, um, so we, we'll need to take the Minister's mind on just what, you know, what the next steps are on, on all of that. Um, you know, and, and, and at what point, um, you know, the, the, the uh, reports completed and shared and made public and so on. Um, in, in relation to um, the ROMPS issue, there, there were a number of um, actual sort of uh, responses on it from the councils um, and also um, from NGOs um, as well, really suggesting that the department should consider speeding up the commencement of those provisions as part of this review. Um, so, you know, that's certainly something we'll also be considering as well. And it's actually another area, you know, notwithstanding the review that we, we, we're going to be talking to the minister about anyway um, over the summer in terms of options for, for taking that, that work forward. Okay, Chair. And I have, Aaron, I haven't forgotten you. I just said, I didn't see you pop up on the screen, but to Talister and, and the group, thanks very much. Thank you, Chair. And okay. uh, I now pass over to Liz Kimmins. Thank you, Chair. Um, just a couple of questions, and thank, thank you all for your um, presentation this morning. Follow these wee bit of background noise here. I'm multitasking this morning. I have a sick child in the house, but um, so apologies. But look, just um, I re I've read through the, the report, and it, it said it received some responses from other departments. Are you able to give any? comment on the substance of their responses or what they would like to see coming out of the review. I know you've mentioned Department for Communities and, and other Angus. It's just to see if there's any detail around that. Um, I, I think at this stage, um, we, we, we probably need to be do some further engagement with those departments. Um, it, you know, I think we're, we're talking about um, the FC and um, justice. Oh. Okay, no, that's fair enough. We're having a bit of competition here. Have you any more sorry. questions, Liz? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, just um, you'll not be surprised I'm raising this again. But obviously, during COVID, I'd raised the issue of extent and planning permission where it might have been needed, and it didn't happen. But I see that in the emerging issues, it said um, there was a, a need to future-proof planning against potential emergencies, um, including the, the potential to extend um, planning permissions that had expired. So I was just say, wanted to see if there, if that is something that um, that is going to be considered now. Are you able to comment on on that issue? 
And is there any re any particular reasons why the department didn't go ahead with that during the department, despite the fact that there was actually a clear desire for it, which has been evidenced in the review? Um, well, um, I suppose it, it is something that we're going to look at, along with other things that that, that, that might enable us to be more ready for something like a, pan a pandemic uh, in, in the future. Although, you know, fingers crossed, it won't happen for for many many years uh, again. But um, that that's certainly something that's come through a lot of the the response, responses. And the specific issue, I suppose, about extending the duration of planning permission. Um, you know, it, it, our our approach to that um, had been that um, we, we got the message out as quickly as possible to the development industry that they needed to commence um, any permissions that were live, and that was the best way to keep those permissions going. Um, uh, you know, and, and also encourage councils to process any kind of renewals that they had for for applications very very quickly. We, we, we engaged quite a lot with other with other jurisdictions on this one, and, and what 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 happened was that planning permissions in Northern Ireland last for five years, um, and in the other jurisdictions where they did extend this, it's because planning permissions only last for three years, so it was a much more acute I I issue, um, and. You know the the reason that that the planning permissions are limited in terms of their their time scale are, are are you know for important reasons in relation to you know the ability to be able to control um, you know situations where where policies change and where we want to maybe bring forward more sustainable approaches to develop to to planning applications going forward in relation to climate change and other changes and if if you just continuously extend permissions. Um, then um, there's no way of bringing them into in control and making the changes that, that you might want to do through new policy. And also, it, it, it further kind of exacerbates the problem we have of land banking, where um, developers sometimes get planning permission and um, the, the land just sits vacant, not developed. Um, and they're kind of you know um, relying on the value of those lands um, as an asset uh, in relation to um, the permissions on them. Um, so you know, you, 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 which isn't good for place making, place shaping, for communities. You know, if, if developers do that, it causes problems. So, you know, it's not something. That sometimes, you know, people think, no big deal. Why don't we just, you know, extend planning permissions? But but there are actually quite a lot of important reasons as to why planning permissions are limited to the time that they're limited. And, and as I've said, in the other jurisdictions, they've actually pushed that the other way. Not you know before the pandemic, where they were they were saying we should limit them to even shorter periods than five years. Yeah, and and I fully appreciate that. I think really just in the, in the context of a pandemic or things like that, I, I think that's something that should be considered. You know, in, in a an emergency situation has been outlined in the response to the review. Just my final question, just a wee bit on it there, uh, Angus. There were some contri contributions from the renewable energy sectors. Um, do you think can they expect then changes to the system following this review, or will they have to wait for more a more specific renewable energy review that's expected to be drafted next year? Um, well, yeah, it's it's a bit of both on that. I think that um, you know the, the the various suggestions that have been brought forward um, from the renewable energy sector um, uh, that, that um, are. Uh, and indeed from other sort of sectors as well uh, about trying to improve and streamline the, the development management process and the planning application process I think are valuable and those will be considered as part of the review process and you know if we can um, speed the system up a little bit in, in that respect we will and that will be a benefit to them 
Um, but subsequent to that, as we were talking to, to, to the committee a couple of weeks ago, we are also reviewing the policy on renewable energy and low carbon development. So um, that will be also obviously of interest to that sector. Um, and that will be more around, um, you know, what types of developments are going to be acceptable, what are the kind of criteria that they need to meet when they come forward and so on, and what conditions would, would um, planning authorities put on them when they approve them, um, or indeed what, what would be the reasons that they wouldn't be acceptable and would be refused. So there, I think that the renewable energy industry will be interested in both of those reviews. Yeah, no, thanks very much. That's brilliant. Thanks, Min, and apologies for my disruption. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> young, young stars appeared. Um, now I can invite Martina Anderson to uh, ask some questions. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chair, and thanks for the presentation thus far. Uh, when Nilga was, when they were at the committee, they raised the issue of enforcement as they view pure or poor enforcement as a, as a major sort of you know, impact um, on the credibility of the system. And it was something that we were all engaging with it because they, they believe that enforcement is underused. And these eight examples of repeated offenders able to exploit loopholes uh, in the system. And the committee has also just recently dealt with the issue of enforcement in the context of unadopted codes of something in my own city in Derry that we're very conscious of the implications that that's having on people's lives. So how frequent were, was the issue of enforcement raised during the review? And can changes to the enforcement system following this? Um, yeah, it, it did come up. It was one of the things that, that, that's come up across um, you know, a wide range of the representations. Um, there's, there's no doubt about that. And the issue of effective enforcement, as you have, as you have said, was one that, that, that has been raised. And it's obviously in the NILGA submission um, as well. And um, it, it is something that um, we can look at. And there are a number of suggestions in there around um, the different sort of options that are open to the councils in terms of taking enforcement. We can, we can look at some of those and um, see if they can be used more effectively. I mean, having said that, uh, you know, enforcement is, uh, planning enforcement is, is, a, is a lot about the, the kind of the emphasis and the kind of resource that you put into it. Um, you know, the, the more resource you put into enforcement, um, the more, you know, proactive you are with it, the, the better, and, and um, your, the ability to catch things early and to take action. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, it, is, it is a difficult um, process and it does require a lot, a lot of resource and a lot of work to, to be put into it. So I think there is also, you know, um, you know a culture there that uh, we need to really recognise at, at all levels, politically and culturally, that, that enforcement is really important. I totally agree with what you're saying. It is about the integrity of the overall system. There's no point in having a planning system if you don't have proper enforcement. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a just... Yes, we'll be looking at, at ways of, of, of improving it, but a lot of it, in my experience over the years, is about um, really being as proactive as you can and, and being very determined with, with enforcement and, and, and having the kind of the courage of your convictions as a planning authority to follow through um, on, on taking action, which is often not um, popular. It, it, it's, it's politically not a popular thing to do sometimes, and it's a difficult thing to do, um, but the tools are, are there. Um, you know, for um, in a, you know, in this jurisdiction, as they are in all jurisdictions, to try and to do that. Okay, I'm glad to hear you say that. But the credibility of the system is definitely being questioned when the enforcement is very weak. 
and uh, whatever about the how, how many challenges that presents us with as political representatives and others, we still have to be able to stand over the credibility of the system, and that's not the case at the moment. So I'm um, glad to hear your response. Another issue raised at the committee was the poor quality of the planning applications, and you touched on that uh, and how some of them can be uh, submitted and how this can delay the planning process. It's sometimes you know, applications are not submitted with all the relevant information required. And we've dealt with all of that recently. And I know that some councils have created what was called a, a local application checklist, just to provide some guidance to applicants on which information they should submit and, and in order to try and speed the process up and improve the changes uh, that were needed in the and so that they can get the permission granted. So how many of the submissions referred to the issue of the per quality planning applications? And could the application checklist innovation or even what you call the predetermination hearings be adopted throughout the North following this review? Uh, I, I don't know the exact number, but but I mean, I'm tempted to say virtually all of the submissions, you know, a huge number of the submissions mentioned that that issue. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, and I mean, I think we recognise it as, as being a key issue. Um, the work that we've been doing on the planning forum, which you touched on, with all the the, the um, statutory consultees and the councils. Um, has identified that um, as, as, a, as a really big issue, um, and, and there are lots of things that you can do to try and improve that. You know, ranging from communicating locally with the agents and developers that are in your area, through to the sort of suggestions that they've, they've that have come forward in the review, which are around, as you've identified, validation checklists. Um, and actually making that a, a strong legislative requirement so that it's very clear um, in each council area what it is that, that, that developers can expect to have to submit with their application in order for it to be made valid and, and in order for the application um, to uh, for the clock to start, if you like, on the processing of the application. So I think it, it, you know, it's fair to say that that's an area where there's a lot of sympathy within the department um, about that issue and about trying to progress that. Um, and, we're, and we're doing a lot of work um, with with the, the councils on that. And probably, I mean, you've heard me in the past, I think, um, in, at the committee talking about the, the culture, uh, uh, cultural issues in the planning system that we have at the moment. And even with the, some of these measures coming in, there still needs to be that um, approach where um, you know we don't view the planning system as a way of MOTing proposals as they go through the system and you're endlessly kind of saying oh well look if you change that it'll be okay and then that comes in and it waits a few weeks for that to come in and then that goes out to the statute consultation there's more time and it just goes on endlessly and at the end of the the, the process you spend so much time and resource and the the applicant gets their approval um, which in some ways is possibly a good outcome but um, I think what we've been discussing in the past has been just changing that culture a little bit where we're a wee bit more robust and um, if, if we don't have the right information uh, then the, we determine the application in front of us um, and if that's a refusal it's a refusal. Well that, that in itself actually may, um, may trigger off uh, some mindsets when they're putting in the, the um, a submission and the application. Right forward in order to speed it up and then also to try to change and improve their chances of permission being granted, then um, I think, you know, that could be seen as somewhat harsh if we don't in the first instance 
at least take account of, for instance, the verification process through an application checklist or do the pre-determination hearings or have a process in place so that by the time they come to you, it comes to you as a package that you're actually having to make a determination on. So I accept what you're saying, but I do think some work needs to be done in the process to change how applications are just put in and then there's a ping pong goes on until they reach a particular standard. Uh, thanks for that and thanks for the work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Um, your your responses to me today. Uh, and now we pass over to Lois Kelly for some questions. Thanks, Chair. And uh, thanks, Angus. The, the, I wanted to back uh, Liz up a bit in in terms of the um, the existing planning permissions. I have one or two constituents whose planning permission end sometimes later this year. You know, but because of COVID, weren't able to get workers. So I'd want to endorse uh, consideration being given for for some extension or a, a better explanation of what entails um, work having commenced, because different um, teams interpret it differently. I mean, I find that just because um, my well, every constituency borders on another. You know, and. Sometimes you make representation across that piece, and then obviously the renewable energy sector is a wee bit, you know, around people uh, champion climate change and decarbonisation, but not if some of the renewable uh, um, planning applications maybe are a wee bit too close. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like the old bus shelters argument. But <clears throat> just um, would say that I do think there has to be something around. Uh, uh, public education, uh, you know, just around all of that in terms of um, what what actually we people should expect. And uh, and one of the things I pick up from time to time, I, I don't think this review is a real opportunity to put some things right. And and I don't think they all cost money. I think it's just about a can-do attitude and a willingness to change. And in that, there is some part you mentioned culture earlier on. You know, there, there does seem to be. Whether, whether it's um, people being a, a bit frightened or, uh, you know, lacking experience, because I do know a lot of experienced planning officers left under the voluntary exit scheme, but a lot of developers and applicants tell me it's very difficult, and even for elected representatives, to get responses in a timely manner now, from planning departments. Now, I know that's you know, uh, partly in the purview of, of councils, but there is a cultural thing where they don't see uh, applicants as being customers. You know, there's not that ethos, it would seem, within that sector. Uh, and that's a recurrent theme that I get uh, from people who seek uh, my assistance. And then um, in terms of um, uh, the, uh, the bit about, I would obviously encourage that bit around enforcement, but the other one is around some repeat offenders in terms of some developers who either don't do the work uh, in terms of the infrastructure, particularly around uh, water and sewage. Um, uh, and and, and I, I think there was one raised too uh, by um, some folk around other alternatives to, I can't remember the name of it, but connecting to, uh, rather than having to connect to the main sewage network, there's a, a newer technology that could allow uh, some work to continue. Um, what I'm sorry, but I'm also finding. I don't know what discussions you've had with NIE, but certainly I'm finding from NIE's perspective, a number of developers having to wait a very long time and being able to connect into the grid. Um, you know, so that's holding up. I know that's not holding up the building, but it is ha holding up uh, the site. 
be in social housing and being able to be handed over. And um, the, the other bit was some uh, developers who are cute and, uh, as I would say here, uh, and getting around the system, you know, putting in piecemeal applications in order to uh, not meet the requirements. Uh, you know, that was the case at one time around open space, for example. But it's also around uh, maybe some industrial sites where, you know, maybe put in for three warehouses and all of a sudden it becomes one. And that then may well have ramifications for the road infrastructure, for a, for example, which may have put a greater onus on the developer's proposals in terms of the conditions. Uh, if there's a piecemeal approach rather than um, some upfront honesty in terms of um, what actually is going to be on the site, you know, they may well already have a key occupant. So uh, those are just some of the things that have come across my desk. Uh, Angus, that I would hope uh, that, that this review will address. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, the, 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 there's, a, there's a lot there, and, and I think definitely the review can can touch on some of them. I mean, the, 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 we talked a little bit about the technical start point, and there is there is kind of case law around that, um, and, and there is, um, from memory, we have some guidance, I think, somewhere in our system about the technical start. It might go back to the previous, um, um, you know, the unitary system under DOE, but hopefully that, that, that would be of assistance on, on that front. Um, and uh, you, the point you're making about you know public e um, education for renewable energy applications again, that's probably more for the our um, renewable energy policy work that we're doing, but um, as opposed to the review. But it, you know, it is very much a key point that I've been making repeatedly in the work that I'm doing with um, our colleagues in DFV on the energy strategy. And it's this point that you have highlighted in relation to everyone in principle will will kind of sign up to renewable energy and climate change and all of that. But somehow, sometimes when it comes down to the local area and it's actually happening, developments happening beside you, it's a different story. So, and then you will have problems in planning. No matter how good your planning system is, you know there will be problems and there will be delays. So, we've been, I've been really banging that drum with with those guys and encouraging them to do work around the public engagement that you, that you have an education that you've identified. So, yeah, I agree totally with that, and that's something we definitely want to want to pursue. The culture point again. I keep coming back to it. Um, I've said I've said it a number of times here, and I, I fully um, agree that that is a key point. And it's something that we 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 we're trying very hard to address through the work we're doing with the forum and generally through the, the engagement that, that we have with um, the, the heads of planning um, to try and really um, get that culture, if you like, correct. And, and give the confidence to planners because it has become a very contested area. Planners are, are under pressure on all sides. Um, you know, there's a fear, I think, sometimes putting your head above the parapet and saying something, and then suddenly, um, you know, there's a challenge comes in, uh, and it's a difficult area to work in. So it's about trying to build that confidence in the leadership, if you like, both at our level and um, locally, to try and allow. It's only when you have that that you can have the sort of engagement that you're talking about, um, Dolores, which I remember in my early days in planning where there was a, there was a lot more openness and, and um, but it, it, it's unfortunately from better experience, you know, where where, where people have been um, got themselves in difficulties because of maybe trying to be helpful. Um, so we, we need to work on that. It's absolutely a key point. Um, and um, the, the, sewage, the sewage and water infrastructure point, I think, um, again, it, it, it's, it's really, you know, water, it's a water issue, um, but um, 
and uh, I think maybe I wonder is it sustainable urban drainage systems that you're you're talking about? And yeah, yeah, and that's something that we really are trying to push. It's 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 in the policy already, um, and I know that the Department of Rural colleagues on the water policy side are really pushing that um, and trying to bring that through. Um, and um, we we do we do engage the grid the access to the grid thing is a separate thing from planning. But we are engaging with NIE, particularly around the work on the energy strategy and the work we're doing on um, policy, because we, you know, we don't want the situation to arise which happened before, where there were lots of wind turbines um, applications coming in, which actually had never had any opportunity to get connected to the grid. So it's just about trying to work closely with um, NIE um, and um, ensuring that there is that join up there, which, which we're definitely um, uh, working on. And finally, um, the piecemeal point is, is, is a good point, and it's one that's just, it's a challenging issue because you have to draw a line somewhere. So you have thresholds somewhere, and if developers, you know, are cute, as you say. Uh, you know, they come in just below the below the threshold. It's all it doesn't matter where you set the threshold. If they want to be like that, you know, then unfortunately they'll do that. And I, you know, I think that's a lot about um, thresholds. Is something we're going to be looking at in this review. So we're, we're, have we got the thresholds right? Um, you know, should should the threshold be a bit lower so that there's more applications fall into the the major category and require a wee bit more work for developers? But we're developing. You know, that's one thing. So we're we're looking at that. But no matter where we decide it should go, if they are going to do that, to me, that's about um, you know the, the the local planning authority engaging with those developers and saying, look, look, that's just not the right way to do business here. You know, um, yes, okay, technically you can get get away with it, but um, you know, you know, if you want to have the right relationships um, in our local area, if you want to care about the community and the place that you're developing in, let, let, let's not let's not play that game. You know, let, let let's try and and, and work collectively together to, to do the right thing. You know, if it's just to avoid coming falling into a certain category where you have to do pre-application community consultation, that's, you know, I mean, that is very bad that, 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 that developers would want to do that because, you know, the whole point of the planning system is, or one of the main factors of the planning system is to have the opportunity for local communities to properly and meaningfully engage into those um, processes and actually you know where, where we have engaged with developers on that over the, you know since it's come in it's actually been very positive you know where they have said when we you know when we have done this we've actually found out that that the, you know the community are want very small changes and if we give it to them they're actually you know much less likely then to object when the planning application comes in so again a little bit about relationships in that one you know um and uh, you know that that's something that i do a lot of the heads of planning um, are, are working on. Thanks, Chair. Okay, and I see Andrew Muir has joined us, so can we have Andrew, please? Um, thank you very much, Chair, and uh, apologies um, for, for, for lateness. Um, and uh, thank you for the officials for coming along. Um, my issue or my questions more not particularly relate around the, the the feedback which is provided for the review because you have already received that you received substantial amount of feedback. The issue is is about the steps, the next steps after that. Okay, um, and th there's two key issues which I think um, are very important to myself. One is about and it's referenced within your report a bit quicker uh, and more streamlined decision making, um, because that's key for me in terms of getting applications decided quicker. 
um, and we, we do need to improve that. And then the other ones in relation to the local development plan, I'll come on to that. Um, in your paper, you outlined next steps, and it was about some of the stuff could be affected through guidance. And it's just, Angus, to see whether there's anything that you can prioritise to get the bit. I understand the bits which would require like primary or subordinate legislation is going to take time, okay? Uh, but it, can we prioritise? Is there any possibility to prioritise stuff that can be um, affected through guidance, and particularly? to speed up the decision-making within the planning process, and are you giving consideration to that? Um, I understand there's a desire to do this properly, and I totally agree with that. So in life, you either do something right or you don't do it at all. Also, that the audit office report is coming out in the autumn, so it's important to dovetail in relation to that. But we're living in the here and now and wanting to get things improved, and if there's any way you can to prioritise getting applications decided quicker just through the... Uh, issue of, uh, of better guidance. So that's my first question. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's very much the place that the minister is in on this. So, you know, um, she is she's very clearly saying to us, I understand there's a process to go through here. We'll get a review report. The review report will have all sorts of suggestions about the different things that we need to do and bring forward, which could be a range of things. But, you know, I want to affect change now and I want uh, to improve things as quickly as possible to do. So, we, we are looking at um, those issues through um, the planning forum, for example, and the planning engagement partnership, where we are, um, um, and indeed through the planning group, where we engage with heads of planning. So, for example, the validation checklist one, which, you know, probably not necessarily, you know, breaking any kind of confidence to say, I suspect that will feature as something that we want to bring forward um, in, in the review. But we're already doing some work here in the department on that. And we're already encouraging the councils to bring that in from an administrative point of view. And I know a number of the councils in Belfast led on this. Um, and now I think there's two or three other ones who are actually bringing it in on an administrative basis and saying, look, it, the department are going to be bringing this in as legislation, but we want to bring it in now and get ready for that so that when, it, when that hits, we're, we're all systems go, we're, we're already operating it. Um, and indeed, even the ones who aren't doing that are actually getting ready as well in terms of trying to have guidance ready locally and, and think about how it would work for them locally in, in that area. We're also doing through the forum, you know, guidance on things like um, pre-application discussions, because that's one of the issues which has come out through the review and it's also come out you know, in other kind of conversations we've had, and um, so we're we're drafting guidance on how to use that more effectively. Um, we're looking at um, guidance on um, improving the interrelationship between the statutory consultees um, and the um, and and the, and the local planning offices around when it's appropriate to issue extensions um, for statutory consultees, when not, and that, and that sort of thing. So there's, there is a there is a range of, of things that we're trying to do. Um, almost in parallel, um, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a balancing act. We don't want to be do something inappropriate that you know ought to wait and go through due process. But um, we we are um, trying to make as many changes as many improvements as we can as we go forward. And we, um, obviously, the other thing I should mention that we're doing is the, and that's full steam ahead, is the um, new um, IT system for planning. Um, which is a big thing that's come out of the review. Every, you know, everyone's talked about that in light of the pandemic, need for digitization, all of that. Well, you know, that, that's, that's going ahead. Um, you know, the, the answer to that in the review report will be 
we're doing it, you know, um, and hopefully, you know, it'll be you know rolled out next year. Um, thank you, Angus, and I think I'm encouraged by that. And if they, even if there's an opportunity for like an interim report just focused upon that areas of guidance that you can take forward, that would be I think I would be keen to see that because um, we could it's tangible deliveries because some of the other stuff will be on the long finger. Um, you know, this mandate's coming to the end of March next year. Um, so by the time you start getting legislation through, it's going to be the autumn of next year being realistic around it. So the other one's just around the local development plans. So we're all aware of the process around that and how, that, how that's envisaged that's going to work. But you'll have seen through, well, through the responses, but everyone knows there's concerns about how elongated that is proving. Um, now, um, I understand we're, we're following the process that's been outlined, but it's whether there's any active consideration given um, to see if we can shorten and improve the, the process that we're following. I know your view is that this is a relatively new planning system, but it's already becoming clear in, and the plan system has been in place for six years now, um, that the LDP process uh, is cumbersome and it's not delivering the results that we need. And if there is really an appetite to try to address that, because I have a real worry, Angus, that if we don't deal with this, the time some of these LDPs come out, they're going to be out of date. And, you know, where we're dealing with the shadow of BMAP, and, you know, that is, yeah, it hasn't even, because of other things, hasn't been adopted. So I'm living in North Down, working towards a development plan, which was in the 90s when I was much younger and uh, had a lot more energy and all the rest of it. So we do need to take lessons from this LDP and change it. And I don't know whether there is an appetite to do that. I'd be interested to get your views on that. There, there absolutely is, is an appetite uh, to, to do that, um, Andrew. And what I'm going to pass you over actually to, to Alistair. He, he leads the team and the department looking at development plans, and he can he can fill you in a bit more on that. Hi. No, thanks for, for that, Angus. Um, I, th I think very much, yes, we, we do have that. Well, as Angus is saying, we've got to, to use this opportunity and to see how the the responses that have been coming forth from, from the, the players in this, such as the councils and the developers, see you know their perceptions of, of where the delays might be coming on, uh, and we need to to have a look at those. You know, I think as planners, we need to be always open and quite honest with ourselves as to where things might not be working and where, where they could be working better. Not be afraid to to raise those issues and as you'll have seen from the, from the responses yeah they, they go from again the, the small tweaks around the system to the more fundamental review uh, of the system in terms of the number of planned documents or so that are coming forward and i suppose you know we i think uh, will look at that all those with with an open mind and with the view as you see what changes can we make uh, will those really speed up the system I suppose what we would want to ensure is that if we do make any changes, we're not actually add, you know, detracting from the vast amount of work that the councils have already done on these plans, and that we don't negate that. You know, we, we would take to take them potentially back to a square one edition. So, very much so. That there's been a lot of interesting comment uh, made again around, you know the procedures, uh, advertising, consultations, and yeah, with an open mind, we definitely really do need to look at those and Thanks see, see much, what we can pull out.
Thank you, Alistair, and thank you, Chair. Okay, uh, can I just, I'll just pick up myself uh, uh, an issue which a member raised, the issue of climate change, and, and obviously there's the 2050 target, but a clear indication that many uh, expect carbon zero to be in place much, much earlier, and uh, planning, and certainly area plans, and development of infrastructure and, and buildings uh, has a very major impact uh, on uh, uh, the, the carbon, carbon output. So my, my question is, um, are any changes required in the planning process do you see in terms of uh, climate change or are you waiting legislation which would then necessitate you doing that? Um, well, I, I think one of the key areas where there, where there will be change and where we've already started working on is the, is the policy for renewable and low carbon development. So, so review, so that there will definitely, I think, be changes in that. And I mean, one of the, one of the you know, key aspects of that work is to make sure that um, that planning policy is kind of appropriately lined up with the, the, the executive's energy strategy, if you like, that's being prepared by DFE at the minute. So um, much of which, as you know, is a response to climate change. And so I would anticipate that through the course of that work, there will be significant changes in policy uh, to, to assist us to, to deliver that. Um, and also, you know, um, whenever we see what comes out of the bill and so on, we'll have to look at that quite right to see what are the implications of that um, for planning and, um, you know, can, can that be dealt with through the renewables review or do we need to make other changes um, in, in planning to give effect to some of those issues? One of, one of the areas that um, is related uh, to this, because bear in mind when you build a house, it, you, you build it for 50 years plus, um, and it is expensive to come and retrofit. Uh, so if you don't get it right at, at, at first, it can be very expensive. Um, so one of the related issues is, is uh, building control and the levels of insulation. Now, I, in the past, have come across uh, sites where a developer uh, will put one footing in at the old building control regulation and an expectation that he would build a batch of houses at a cheaper level, um, with many, perhaps, those who are buying not, not particularly being aware, as long as it's built to the current building regulations. So can you clarify, uh, are there any such uh, systems in place whereby the most up-to-date uh, uh, building regulations can be avoided. Is that a planning issue or is that an issue that uh, can be put down as, as a condition on the planning process that, that the currents uh, would be updated? Or is that something that would have to be addressed through building control regulations update? Uh, no, that, that would definitely be something for our colleagues in, in building control um, and, and working in the, in the regulations, which is uh, Department, uh, Department of Finance. Um, so, um, I mean, I know there's a lot of liaison at the local plan level where councils are responsible for both. Um, sorry, at the local planning authority level where councils are responsible for both. But certainly at that sort of strategic issue, um, it's a matter really for um, DPOF. Okay. I think that's all members who wish to ask the question. Are there any late questions that anyone wishes to ask in addition? Okay. Um, uh, can I just thank you and your team for... Uh, uh, given so, so many many answers and, and direction of what, what you're doing. Uh, and could I ask, would you be coming back to the committee with your draft proposals uh, in terms of the way forward? 
before uh, they are finalised, so we might be able to uh, give feedback. Um, well, I, I suppose that that's that's still to be decided. Um, we need to, you know, discuss those those next steps with the minister. Okay. Um, that being the case, can I thank you, uh, Angus, Osterbeggs, uh, Arian Kennedy, and Tom Matthew for for coming in front of us today and giving us uh, the information. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Next members, uh, we're receiving a briefing from uh, taxi operators um, and the current issues facing the sector. Uh, and Hansard will again be recording the meeting. Can I draw you to page 83, uh, taxi operators briefing paper regarding issues facing the taxi sector. Page 84, Northwest taxi proprietors DVA issues uh, for taxi drivers. And at page 85, Northwest Taxi Proprietors issues facing the taxi industry. Uh, I think that's that's all that I need to. Nothing tabled. Is that? Uh, sorry, in addition, uh, tabled at page uh, three, there's additional information on issues facing the the sector. Can I welcome uh, a number who are joining us via Starleaf? We have Stephen Anton. Communications Manager of Phonacab, uh, Eamon Corrigan, the Depot Owner of Regency Taxis. Um, now, Stephen will be opening under, uh, giving opening remarks and an overview. Eamon will be giving uh, a view on taxi operator financial assistance and Class C licensing. We then have Eamon uh, O'Donnell, who is the Manager of Northwest Taxi Proprietors. Who will be talking on access to the taxi industry, and then with Mr. William McCausland, director of Phonacab, who will be commenting on metering and price increasing increases. Um, so I, I now invite you to uh, uh, present to the, to the committee. Over, over to you, Anton. Uh, yeah. Good morning, fair members. Thank you. Um, uh, Mr. McCausen, Mr. William McCausen uh, won't be joining us for this meeting. It's the, the four of us you hopefully see on screen at the moment. Um, chair members, thank you for your time this morning. Hopefully everyone can hear me before I get into the meat of this. Yes? Uh, yeah, just opening remarks, please. Uh, thank you. Um, chair, before COVID, the taxi industry was already suffering from a decline in uh, driver numbers and an already older and aging driver population. When COVID hit, many of these drivers chose to self-isolate and not work, while others initially continued before stopping due to low earning potential, despite operators subsidizing their depot costs. A significant number of these drivers will never return to taxiing, and with many more taking more stable job options or retiring from the industry. This is a problem now and will only get worse with concerns already being raised about our ability to continue to serve our communities. With reduced numbers of drivers working and with the cost of subsidising those who do, uh, we believe uh, on average by 30%. Can I ask everyone to mute their microphone unless they're speaking because we're getting feedback? So if you're not speaking, please mute your microphone. Sorry about that, Stephen. I asked you to commence again. You can keep going. Yep. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, some operators can no longer operate 24-7, denying their, in many cases, disadvantaged communities the access to services and society that are not met by other forms of transport. It's not the affluent who want to travel and suffer. 
It's those that must travel and have a known alternative. And these are the elderly, the trip to the hospital, those away from a bus or train route, the night shift or essential worker traveling in the small hours. Services will be curtailed, sponsorship in local communities cut, charitable activity culled, fewer taxis to welcome tourists when the market returns, more pressure on our health service to provide secondary services, who provides transport for wheelchair users and passengers with sight difficulties and guide dogs, who services rural areas other transport operators cannot. One commentator on social media even went as far to suggest an increase in drink driving when there's no one to get you home from the pub. Now, all that should sound familiar. It's word for word from our presentation to this committee last December. Unfortunately, what we predicted would happen has happened, and despite the, the gradual easing of lockdown, the state of the taxi industry continues to be in decline. Numbers have dropped by approximately 1,000 drivers each year, from 16,000 in 2013 to around 8,000 now. And we believe there's been a further 30% decline because of the pandemic, and the industry is now trying to deliver services to Northern Ireland with around 5,000 active drivers. This will have a major knock-on effect to the whole economy, and as well as affecting those in your constituencies who use and need taxis most, will affect the executive aspirations for hospitality and tourism recovery. At the implementation of the Taxis Act, the Minister for the Environment, Mark Durkin, showed his support for the sector, saying, Members of the Assembly will, I am sure, share my view that taxis are a vital and valuable part of our community. Every year they greet many of the million-plus visitors who come to Northern Ireland. They make tens of thousands of trips to bring people to and from work or safely home after a night out. Uh, they also help some of our most vulnerable people, young and old, travel in the way the majority of us take for granted. Unfortunately, a number of the changes the Taxis Act introduced are now delivering the opposite effect for which they are intended. The figures I have just given you show this is not something new, but the problems have been compounded by the pandemic. To address these, we are here today to present ideas for a COVID recovery package, focusing on four key issues. We have already met with department officials to discuss these matters, but we need your support to encourage ministerial approval. Uh, these issues are the current fare structure and how it has not changed in 10 years. Unregulated fares and issues with taxis operating as Class C. Entry procedures to the industry being too cumbersome, expensive and complicated, and how this is actively dissuading drivers from joining the industry. And finally, the need for financial support as part of a recovery package. The first issue concerns driver earnings and the current departmental cap placed on them. Operators need to support our self-employed drivers and our valued customers. We want to deliver a top quality service and cannot do this due to the lack of drivers. One of the reasons for this is the current tariff structure is not fit for purpose, not only the level of fares, but also the times that they can be charged. We need a fare structure that will make being a driver an appealing job to increase the supply of drivers and to incentivize them to work anti-social hours, for which they need a premium fare during the busiest hours when there is the highest demand. Most drivers choose when they work and do not have fixed hours. Uh, many have enjoyed more family time during the pandemic and now want a better work-life balance. Many have chosen to work Monday to Friday during the day and spend more time with family and friends in the evenings and weekends. While this is great for the driver, this is detrimental to passengers who then cannot get a taxi during peak busy hours. Following the introduction, following the introduction of the Act 2008, uh, the Taxi Fare Regulations 2015 was introduced, and the first structure which was introduced was based on a 2011 cost review. 
Under the terms of these regulations, the first uh, following review was due in 2018. Uh, we were told this was carried out by the department, but no raise was given. The next review was carried out in 2019, and we were told again that this information was being passed to the Minister for approval, and again, nothing happened. Pre-summer 2019, we were told that any tariff changes would go for consultation with the Consumer Council and others after the summer recess, and this also did not happen. Then in early 2020, there was the outbreak of COVID and everything was set aside. Drivers have had their earnings capped for six years, and as the original tariff card was based on 2011 costs, in reality, it's been 10 years. With continuing increases in costs and overheads, they've actually had a net drop in earnings, and what other industry has had no pay increase for over six years? The national living wage has risen by about 5% per annum over the last four years, and despite the government approving increases in bus and train fares on an annual basis, for some reason will not approve any increase to regulated taxi fares. So how do we fix this? Uh, well, we would request that the Minister and her department carry out an urgent review of the first structure and to address the differences between days, evenings and weekends. As part of this review, advice should be sought from representatives of the industry. Uh, we have a proposal that we believe is reasonable and can help bring more drivers into the industry and encourage drivers to make the decision to work evenings and weekends when we have the most demand and to make it lucrative for them to do so. How fares are regulated in Northern Ireland is a major factor in our second area of concern. Uh, you should have seen from the papers that were sent to you in advance of this meeting uh, a little breakdown of the different classes of how taxis operate in Northern Ireland. Um, class A covers the majority of private hire taxis. Class B is for public hire. The Taxi Act that was introduced in 2008 to regulate the whole industry at that time said that Class C was designated for funeral, wedding and novelty vehicles and not taxis. Unfortunately, the Act has been abused and the number of Class C taxis continues to rise. Uh, while, class C, cla sorry, while Class A and B taxis have a regulated maximum tariff of 1.57 per mile, there are now 1,200 Class C taxis in Northern Ireland whose fares are not regulated and can charge customers what they want without any oversight by the department. With the current increased demand for taxi, uh, taxi services, we believe customers are now being vastly overcharged by major Class C operators. We're seeing examples which reflect what has happened in the UK and the US, and the evidence suggests that these higher prices are happening much more and in non-public times. This will have a huge impact on the disadvantage in our communities, and we envisage the price increase for bread and butter work uh, for which we are seeing uh, being ruled out in Merseyside by one Class C operator is not too far away from being ruled out in Northern Ireland. There are other ramifications as well if operators continue to exploit the Class C loophole. As these taxis do not use meters or signs and look very much like standard cars, there is a risk that those operating illegally may find it easier to pass themselves off as Class C drivers. Unfortunately, this makes the job of ensuring passenger safety whether through properly vetted drivers or correctly insured cars, that much more difficult to guarantee. And again, how do we fix this? Well, we are asking for the department to do what it started and finish the task of closing the Class C loophole so that all classes operate and are regulated in the same way. Uh, this was promised by the then DFI Minister Chris Hazard in 2016 when the department announced that the Minister is aware of concerns around licensing classification for taxis and reiterated that Class C is intended for use by 
for example, wedding, funeral and novelty vehicles, and not as a general taxi class. He made it clear that he will be moving promptly to resolve the matter. We appreciate that a different minister will have different priorities, but we would appeal to the minister to recognise the importance of the taxi industry to our economy and our communities in the same way as our predecessors. Our issue concerns entry requirements to the industry. We need to be able to support those drivers who are currently not working to help them return to work, and we need to make it quicker, easier and more cost-effective for new drivers to join and remain in the industry. To become a driver, as well as currently having to hold a normal driving licence for a minimum period of three years, an applicant must be accessed and iCleared, must pass a medical assessment, must have an approved and insured vehicle, and must pass both a taxi practical and theory test. Once qualified, the driver must then complete a regulated number of CPC or CPD hours to maintain their licence. And every element of this process costs time and money. Um, I've already mentioned a thousand drivers have left, left the industry each year and an estimated additional 3,000 are not working. As a comparison, last year only a 111 sat their theory test with 22 passing and no guarantee that they entered the industry. And it's not difficult to see from uh, these numbers the imbalance in the outflow and who's coming into the industry. So again, we have another proposal. How do we fix this? For a period of three years or until a review of the Taxi Act is complete, we are asking for a temporary rollback of regulations just to where the industry was in 2015. We appreciate that any relaxation or simplification to the current entry requirements may require further policy and legislative consideration, and we are asking the Minister to do so. This would involve new taxi driver to require a normal driving licence and a medical and an access NI clearance the taxi theory and practical tests to be temporarily suspended. Existing drivers or new drivers once they have gained their licence to have a suspension of CPD or CPC requirements and that new taxi licence is being awarded on the condition that entrants are on an operator licence within four months to avoid a glut of unused taxi driver licences and extra unnecessary work for the DVA. Now, finally, there is one outstanding issue, and that is financial support for operators. Operators have engaged with the Department and the Committee on numerous occasions since the beginning of the pandemic. To date, there has been no financial support for operators from DFI, and only general support for a very small number of operators from other departments. Many operators supported drivers through the pandemic with zero costs for substantial periods of time. The coffers are now close to empty for a significant number of these companies. The demand for taxis may currently be high, but without the drivers to fulfil that demand, operators have their income severely restricted as they generally do not earn from passenger demand, but rather from the service they provide to working drivers. And 30% fewer drivers means 30% less opportunity to earn that income. Uh, all the time, outgoings remain the same. So how do we fix this? Well, the industry needs to be regarded in the same way as other parts of the transport sector and to be giving financial support as part of a recovery package to allow operators to recover and support drivers coming into the industry or to remain in the industry. The department, unfortunately, cannot continue to ignore the effect that the pandemic has had on drivers, operators and the sector as a whole. All of these issues should be addressed as part of a review of the Taxis Act, but we can't wait that long. The industry is in crisis now and fixing it is an emergency and not a luxury. 
If driver numbers across the industry do not improve, this will have a real implication when lockdown restrictions are completely relaxed. For example, trying to get those enjoying a night out home safely, especially at weekends and with seasonal demand in the lead up to Christmas. Other knock-on effects uh, on other taxi services, um, for example, journeys to doctors, hospitals, school run, access to work, these all come under pressure when demand exceeds supply. A rise in drinking is unexpected, an increase in lifts or illegal uninsured taxiing, the requirement for more police presence in town centres at closing time to prevent antisocial behaviour are all issues that we expect is happening. We see that no member of this committee, sorry, we are sure that no member of this committee wishes to see these events happening when they have been recommended solutions and have had the opportunity to act on them. But this needs to be addressed in solutions found now, not in three years or even next year. Approximately 10 weeks until schools open again in September. And if changes are not made before then, the additional pressures will mean school-run contracts not being fulfilled, health trust, health trust appointments being missed, and constituents in your areas being denied access to basic transport needs. We're calling on the Minister to act now, and we would welcome your support in encouraging her to do so. Uh, my colleagues and I are happy to take any questions you might have, and thank you for your time. Okay. Um, you've given a very, very detailed uh, presentation covering a wide range uh, of subjects. Do any of your colleagues wish to briefly uh, add any additional comments? I am conscious that uh, if they were to take a, a significant period, we may have no engagement and no questions. So uh, I, I'm asking if, if uh, Eamond uh, Corrigan, Eamon O'Donnell or Chris McCausland wish to make any additional brief comments or shall we go straight to questions? Are you content to go to questions then from members? Okay, I'm not hearing anything back. Uh, so that being the case, uh, I'll go to Cahill, Cahill Boylan. Okay, Chair, can you hear me all right? Yep. Yeah, thank you. And thank, listen, I'd like to thank the industry for coming along. A few, a few points I want to make. Um, and clearly it was, it was a comprehensive briefing and uh, the papers here. Um, just in terms of the, the industry as it is now, I mean, everybody thinks that because uh, we're back up and going uh, to some extent and, and the industry looks to be busy. But the truth of the matter is there's, there's been a fall in the number of taxi taxi drivers and it looks as if you know, you're meeting the demand. But the truth of the matter, that's not the truth in, in relation to the numbers itself. But just your, your views on the fall in numbers and how do you think the rest of 2021 is going to pan out for, for all of these? That's the first question. Can I pick up on that, Cahill? Yeah. People need to get it, and, and we're asking you, and thanks for the opportunity for speaking these, but we are in crisis, and we need the minister to move to address uh, the issues coming out of COVID. We, we, we need the legislative and policy changes. The actual impacts for the, the taxi industry with the, the lack of drivers, the impacts on, on the, the, the possibility of increased drinking, we're getting it in the neck from Visit Derry, from City Centre Initiative, from the Purple Flag people about safe city centres. All of that stuff, because there's people loitering about the city centres, where tourism want us to do the staycations. Staycations don't look favourable when the city centre's not been read. All the issues coming from that. You have the issues in and around the, the, the vintners and, and the restaurants and the hospitality. Everybody wanting to do, have a recovery from COVID. Us not being able to supply the taxi services. The, the rise of unregulated sector and, and, and all of that. 
we are in crisis. We need the, the, the committee to put pressure on the minister. We need them to act urgently and create policy and legislative change, which allows us to bring people in. We are the people that, that, that support the taxes hacking principle. And, and we're the people that Sandy that, that it needs rolled back. We need a temporary suspension, and we need to get we need to get a lot of young people into the industry as well. There's great opportunity, job opportunity here, but the implications of doing nothing is going to be a major crisis come September with school contracts and, and health contracts. And I'm just you know, I appreciate your answer. I mean, and other members can come in and and anybody uh, else like respond. You've outlined in all your presentations the key elements that you've mentioned, but I want to pick up on a couple of points. In terms of the taxi driver license requirements, you're saying that is inhibiting us in, in ways of, of getting numbers and, and leading to driver driver decline numbers. So in terms of the, the taxi driver license and requirements, how is that seriously impacting at the minute? And what can we do to, to try, try and alleviate some of those problems? Because I want, I want a few specific questions that... We want to try and tease out to see how we as a committee can, can support this, you know. If you look at the numbers that we got from a taxi the taxi theory applications last year was 111. There's no great incentive for people to enter. Because the, the old system, the, 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 the old system used to, we used to be able to get people in the taxi industry over a period of 6 to 10 weeks. The new system takes 46 months and, and much longer for some people that aren't academically sort of at themselves. That the lack of numbers coming in is killing the industry. The, the taxi theory test is a major, major blockage. That both tests should be suspended until back to just what we were, Cattle World 2015, until such times as we can get these numbers fixed. We are in and coming out of the worst crisis of our lifetime. And, and as much as we had a problem going into it, the problem coming out of it is much worse with the amount of the older people that have left the industry. We need something that fixes these numbers quickly. Being the taxi theory and taxi practical needs suspended. And, and you're, you're saying so go back to pre what 2016 in terms of entry requirements and all of that to give you a chance to, to, get, to get back? Or a period either up to three years or until the department do review that actually addresses the issues and the problems. That people have to see the problem of a drop from 16,000 licences down to 8,000 licences. There is an issue, it's not been addressed, but this is an emergency crisis. We need something that gets us over the September school crisis and we need something that gets us over the, the, the COVID uh, pandemic. And we need to be able to support all the other sectors going, going forward. And, and just two fine points, because I know all the members will have all the, all the questions that I'll give, I'll give you other people an opportunity. Just, just in terms of some of the things that would help, I mean, clearly, you know, decrease the cost for tests, making it easier online uh, portal, making that, that process easier for you, um, and the cost associated with taxing. All those things would give you an opportunity to, to, to recover during this COVID period. Is that fair enough to say? All the things that Stephen has addressed in a, in, a, in a presentation will help the industry recover. The, the, for me, the big issue is getting people into the industry, covering the numbers. Right, and just just one thing, I know all the members. In, in terms of electricity, is all in terms of numbers. Um, the the your starting point of two years ago in terms of numbers, and where you are now, and you know coming out of the pandemic and trying to fight back in, in terms of numbers and figures of drivers. 
have I, I missed a wee bit of the, the, the presentation. Have you have you used figures in relation to that there or even percentages in terms of what you have dropped? Yeah. And that's a question to all of you if you want to answer that, please. Thank you. Can I just follow uh, up something try let you finish? To, to, just on the figures, I mean, the, the, the DBA figures, I have them here, and, the, and they were put out in the BBC, 10,268 for 2018-19, and that drops the 8,700 to 2021. We believe we're exactly 30% down on that, and that's where we get the 5,000 active drivers. So they, these are the official figures, and if you go back to 2013, the figures was up as high as, as 16,000 active taxi driver licences, dropping right down to, to where we are now. It's a crisis, Cahill. And Eamon, just to put it to delegates to Steve and Eamon and Christopher, is that is that a ballpark figure we're talking about thirty percent there, or what? And he's like to respond in relation to that, please. Uh, so uh, Carl, can I answer that? Um, we have been experiencing the same thing. Uh, we have uh, documented publicly that prior to the pandemic, we would have had a total of around about fourteen hundred drivers. And on any uh, average week, you would have had around about 1,250 to 1,300 of those working. Because some obviously take holidays, some are off on sickness and so on. Uh, Post-pandemic, we have an active fleet each week of between 850 and 900 drivers. Now, uh, that has knock-on implications um, in more ways than you might imagine. Uh, for example, uh, those drivers, as I said in their presentation, because drivers work their own hours and choose when they want to work, there's plenty of work for them during the week, and that's great, but it also means then that we can't cover work uh, at the weekends because the drivers are getting sufficient work because there's so much demand at the minute for uh, Monday to Friday without working weekends. Now, we have no problems with drivers because the work still needs to be covered during the week, but we are losing out because we don't have that extra capacity to be able to cover peak time work. There is another aspect of that as well, and that is, is that because drivers can um, uh, be a little bit more, I suppose, selective about the job that they uh, accept. A driver may be inclined to accept a, I don't know, a £15 job that's taking someone from Belfast to Lisburn quicker than he might be taking a pensioner from Asda Dundonald back home at £4. So the issue that we have is, is that uh, there's not enough drivers to cover the peak times. There's not enough drivers to make sure that all work is covered for all types of jobs during the non-peak times. And we want to make sure that the bread and butter type customers that we refer to aren't left out uh, because we can't cover the work. But we're disappointed with this. We don't want to let anybody down. Uh, we track the amount of time it takes for one of our drivers to get to a passenger. And it's our guys who, if we can't give you a booking, uh, we don't like letting a customer down. But equally, we don't like getting phone calls saying, well, you normally get to me in 10 minutes. You took half an hour this morning and I was late for work or I missed my doctor's appointment. And unfortunately, it's the lack of capacity of drivers in the business that causes issues like this. So it's not just it's not just missed bookings. Listen, Eamon, uh, you want to come in there, Eamon Corrigan? Yes, yes, please, Carl. And thanks, everybody, for giving us the chance again to present to you today. Um, the uh, out, uh, moving out of the moving out of the city, uh, more into the the provincial towns and villages and the rural areas across the province. Um, the number of drivers has in most in most taxi companies has fallen to 
a level of 40%, 45% on what their, their numbers were pre-COVID. So when you haven't got when you haven't got the staff, the drivers to go and do the work, the actual demand is probably today trading around 70, 75%. And obviously coming up as the guys have alluded to in September. Um, and more more lockdown being being released here, and and economy opening up, we we are going to be worse worse a lot worse off. Uh, we might get away with during the day, during the summer months here when the schools are off. But when the schools are back in September, we all have the peak time seven in the morning to nine, and uh, two o'clock to four o'clock. And in the towns and villages outside of Belfast, um, all we're doing is answering the phone and saying, no, we don't have a taxi. People are coming back and say, what is the soonest? And we're actually saying, we'll get you one in an hour or an hour and a half. And they're actually waiting for that. And that's just the, the people who need a taxi to go and get the weekly groceries in Asda or Tesco's. That's how bad the situation is. Whereas pre-COVID, we used to deliver a service in, in, in Antrim or Newry or Balamina, Coleraine, anywhere. You could deliver a service pre-COVID with the, with the volume of drivers that you had all day long, every day. And we would only have lost work to people on a Saturday night. You could never service the work on a Saturday night, either in the cities or outside, outside in, in, in the towns and villages. You could never service it no matter how many drivers. But the peak times now, because of the shortage, and the situation has been badly, badly increased due to COVID. And as the guys have also said, a lot of guys have licenses. They've either decided, right, they're 60, the age, the age stock, the driver age stock in most companies is now 55 plus. And these guys, have actually said if they're 60, 61, I'm near retirement, I'll not go back. I've maybe got a pension coming. I don't have a mortgage left. The wife has maybe a pension coming and I'm just gonna take it a bit easier and not put not put their life at, 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 at risk due to COVID as well, you know? Okay, you've been very effectively highlighted the shortage of drivers and, and you've indicated a very cumbersome process taking four to six months for a new driver. But can I ask, in terms of the entry requirements, what are the requirements you think are there that should be dropped or amended to make life easier for new drivers coming in? The issues that I think need to be suspended until they're fixed in a review is the entry with the taxi theory test and the taxi driving test. If we go back to where we were in 2016, that, that, I'm on about keeping it safe. Fully access NI, as people get good medical, have people, have people have good repute, all of that uh, we, we, we want kept. But the actual blockage is coming from the, the taxi theory test and the taxi practical test. That, that's the only parts that we want suspended to allow us to get people in. Under the oil system, it'll be six to 10 weeks. We are facing a crisis in September. We need drastic action and we need urgent action. Also a huge problem. Um, sorry, can you hear me? Yes. 
Sorry. Another huge problem, obviously, in drawing people into the industry is the fare structures at present. Um, drivers uh, who, since the 2015, when the meters were introduced, there was obviously to be a review of the meter price um, after year three. Now, the two, in 2015, um, the meter prices uh, were set um, based on a 2011 pricing review. Um, which means it's now 10 years from the drivers have actually had an increase um, based on the prices of 2011. But physically from 2015, for six years, there's been no pay increase. Now, I don't know any other industry in the world that hasn't had a pay increase in six years. Um, and this is obviously a big barrier to people coming into the industry as well. Because the drivers left a certain amount of fares, they have overheads, they have cars, they have depot rent, they have insurance, they have all their overheads of fuel and everything to pay out of that, which have all gone up, yet their income hasn't moved. Um, I mean, national living wage has risen by about 5% in the last, uh, over, sorry, 5% per annum over the last four years, yet fares haven't increased at all. Um, the minister obviously has the, uh, and the department obviously have the ability to increase uh, train fares, bus fares, and all that stuff, which they do on an annual basis. I don't think that the government actually recognise um, that the lack of available taxes in Northern Ireland will have a major knock-on effect on the whole economy. And as the Northern Ireland Assembly has told us, you know, there's going to be a growth in, in tourism over the next five years. They reckon it could double. We're running at the moment at 70% capacity um, of what we were originally doing, and we can't handle that. Once we come back to 100% capacity, when we come out of COVID, it's going to be a disaster. But if there's further tourism growth, we just we just won't be able to do it. You know, it's just it's going to be a physical impossibility. I mean, we need a minister who cares about our industry, and as far as I'm concerned, the minister that we have at the moment doesn't care about the industry has done nothing for us at any stage, and we need help from this uh, committee to try and push the minister to do something for us. Okay, come now pass to Liz Kimmins for a question. Thank you, Chair, and, and thank you all. I think that's been a very, very detailed and informative briefing so far. Um, and I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's very evident just the challenges that, that the industry are facing. Um, just on some of the stuff that you said, and I know it's been covered, but in relation to the drivers that aren't returning to work, um, and I know in the briefing paper, it's, it's in sight that we're waiting for kind of more normal times and vaccinations and things like that. Do you think that there is a minority of people who are presently not working as a driver will, will only be on a temporary basis, and it's a, it is a, a bigger group of drivers who will have left on a more permanent basis? I know you said that there are about the, the kind of age... Um, the, you know, the average age of drivers, and that's obviously a factor as well. If, if people are saying, look, there's no point in me going back at this stage in my life for all the reasons you've outlined, um, do you think that will be a, a much larger group of the total drivers that, have, that are currently not working? Within, within our own company, Value Cabs, um, we, have, we had 800 drivers. We have about 425 drivers back at present. Um, we know that there's a hundred of our original drivers will not be back. They've already told us they're gone, they've retired, they've given up their licenses, they've done whatever. Um, we still have a group of about 150 drivers here sort of sitting on the fence. We have a lot of drivers who have gone off and are working for the like of Amazon and different delivery companies and things like that. Um, but I do believe that the, the fare structures, if they were looked at quickly, 
I think we could recover some of those 150. But we have really, really struggled. Even over the last few weeks, we have been personally ringing our drivers. Um, we have a management team who have been ringing each driver personally, trying to get them back. I mean, almost begging them to come back because we're, we're letting so many people down. Um, three weeks ago, we had 16,800 jobs that we couldn't cover. And again, about a week ago, we had 8,700 jobs that we couldn't cover. Um, so it's, it's completely, it's maddening because we've spent, I mean, I've spent 23 years of my life since we opened the company, building a company up and building a brand and building an image. And it's all been destroyed now and we have no control. We can do nothing about it because we can't get people in the industry. It's not like if you own a restaurant or own a shop, you just go out and get staff. You can get them off the street. If you, you know, if you pay enough money, you can get them to come and work for you. But our industry has blockages before they can come in. And we really, really need help to get this sorted out. And we don't want it to be long term. We're happy to go back to the, the principles again once we get the numbers up. But I, we would definitely like to have a two year, three year suspension, or at least until they review what, it, what was previously done. Because they did promise us a review. But again, that review has been put on the long finger. And it's like everything else within um, the department, everything seems to go on to the long finger. I mean, this, the, the fur rise was supposed to be reviewed in 2018. It was done, but nothing was actually put up. It was reviewed again in 19. It was then supposed to be sent to the minister for approval. That didn't happen. Then it was to go to the Consumer Council uh, at the end of the summer of 19. That didn't happen. And then um, after that, uh, COVID broke out and obviously everything was put on the back boiler. But I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. We have no control at all over, over anything. You know, we can't get anybody to do anything unless the department open this up. Liz, yeah. see just Liz, they, they sort of explain from, Christopher gave you a figure 16,000 three weeks ago and 8,000 there last week. I mean, they, they understand that figure. So there's up to 8,000 people have now decided, I'm going to get a carry out and a Chinese and I'm going to sit in the house as opposed to getting up the town or going out. So it's actually, it, it's, it's, uh, suppressing all the trade for the restaurants, the pubs and all them other things. That That's people deciding not to go out because they can't get home. Yeah, I mean, and that's very, very stark figures, Christopher and Eamon. I think it's quite shocking to hear that that's the, the volume of work, the volume of demand. I mean, it's great to hear that there's demand, but as you said, when there's severe capacity issues that you're facing. And another thing that really strikes me is, and, and some people have touched on, on this as well, is the reliance on the rural community for the taxi sector. Um, and I come from a health and social care work background myself, so I know too well that older people are heavily reliant because they don't have the, the same connectivity from public transport. So there's a heavy reliance on the taxi sector there to take them to important appointments for social interaction, all of that. And as we say, we're coming through a, a very difficult time for people like that who have been isolated, um, which has been doubly compounded by a pandemic and are probably really keen to get back out. And the, there's going to be issues with that as well. So, I mean, there's all of those issues, I think, that we need to look at in the round two and how that's going to impact. Um, so, you know, apologies. Um, it's it's just, I think, you know, you, you've outlined very, very well there that the impact on the economy, but also I think we need to talk about the health and wellbeing, both of, of yourselves and of the community there who are completely reliant on the service Eamon, you think you're looking to come in there? Uh, the, the, the issues that Liz, that we're presenting here today uh, to the committee 
we we have discussed these issues on an ongoing basis constantly for the last five or six years with department officials now for a period of time obviously uh we had with nothing happening uh due to other issues in government but we then met with nicola mallon in february 2020 pre-covid and we delivered the same sort of presentation that we are given here today to yourselves all the same issues we have delivered either for the last five years to department officials when there wasn't a minister there and then in february 2020 to nicola mallon she said give me time i'm only in the job and we'll go away and she'll discuss it with our officials and come back to us. During COVID, at one of our Zoom meetings with her, I asked her again, how are we getting on? Are you going to come and help us here? And she still has said, no, nothing's yet. Give me a chance. There's COVID. There's the pandemic. Now, that's just not good enough. It's not good enough for the taxi industry as a whole. But more important, it's not good enough for the end user. It's not good enough for the end user. And the end user is going to continue to suffer over the next months. And when things get bad and really bad, and I'm talking more about when, when you have this vacuum, you're going to have more illegal taxiing and more drink driving. And then it's just get, get, getting out of hand. And like we are passionate about what we do. We want to give a service. But quite frankly, we don't have the tools to do it. We do not have the tools. We are shackled to do with the requirements of the Taxis Act. And we need to sit down along with ourselves, the department, the minister, and, and, and put our heads together and sort these problems out. Yeah, no, thank you. And I mean, just the two final points, I suppose, just in my own area and you're already here, I know um, just Clan Ray, for an example, as an operator and, and probably a smaller operator, um, would have worked away throughout the pandemic, probably operating at a loss to provide vital services, just like what I've outlined there as well and what others have outlined. You know, Can you give me a bit of insight, just the impact of the pandemic itself on those smaller operators? Um, and the second question, rather just in coming back, is just in relation to the taxi fare tariff and how it hasn't changed. Um, have you any uh, uh, insight into how often it changes in other jurisdictions in comparison to here? In most, in most jurisdictions in the UK, they have a, an annual review. So um, I think within the Taxis Act, I think it was set to be done every three years. Um, but because the review in 18 didn't show anything as far as the department was concerned. Um, they, they put it off for year to 19. But in most jurisdictions in the UK, it's almost like a percentage rise each year in the fares. Um, but I mean, in, in reality, what you've got to remember is the meter fare is the driver's wages. It's a time and mileage fare. Um, he's got a car to maintain. He's got all the overheads of the vehicle. I mean, we have, we have an issue at the moment with the waiting time, which is stuck in the, in the uh, structure of the fares at the moment, which is set at £12 uh, per hour, which is, includes the driver's time and the vehicle. And those, I mean, that rate's ridiculous. If you, if you rent a man in a van, it's £25 an hour. You know, so those figures, with the national living wage being, what, uh, £9.80 or something like that at the moment, they offer somebody £12 an hour to cover the overhead of a vehicle, Everything and his time and all is completely mad. See, see the touching some of the points of the smaller offices, Liz. I mean, up here we have had one office closed, 
Uh, we have another one who the, the, the active owner ha, has walked away from the industry. It, it's, it's changing hands. Will it survive a change in hands? I don't know. But, I mean, the small operators have done like the bigger operators, only they wouldn't have had the same resources. They, they have run with the, the, the free rents, they've run with the reduced rents, and the coffers are empty. They're struggling. They're hanging on by a thread. Uh, and, and they, they need, need support to try and get the, the, the 30% of guys that are out there to try and encourage, encourage them back and need help with that. And they also need help to keep their businesses going. As regards up here in Derry, the CR, Part B CRBSS, I did a meeting last week and nobody at that meeting got anything. So the local taxi operators in Derry, none of them have had any government support uh, during the pandemic, which is terrible and has seen some of them go to the wall. Yeah, no, no, thank you very much. I mean, I think that's definitely very helpful for, for our benefit and how we then look at how we can help, uh, try to help the situation as well. Right. <clears throat> Members, I, I'm, I'm told that Cal has to go at half 12. I think we probably want to ensure we have about five minutes uh, to decide if we're going to take any, any recommendations or decisions. So we, we may be able to take questions for about five minutes, but uh, if we're actually going to try and help the industry uh, by taking a decision, uh, I would want to stop about uh, uh, in about five minutes to, to, to determine something. We can then go back to taking further evidence after that. But if we lose quorum below five, we cannot uh, take decisions as a committee. We can only receive evidence. So uh, I, I pass to Martina at this stage uh, for a few more questions. But I'm just giving warning. I think we should have to break in if we're going to try and help the industry. Uh, solve some of these problems by taking decisions uh, or considering its options uh, uh, within five minutes. Uh, members content? Over to Martina. We've lost everybody. We've lost everybody? The looks of it. Oh, there's, that's back. We're still here. <laughs> no. We've lost, oh, there's a few still here. We've lost, we've lost everybody, so we need to wait and see. Major technical problems. Sounds like an outage here, up here, by the looks of things. Chair, uh, would you mind if I uh, add one further point to Liz's question just while we're waiting? Um, that's okay, still giving the evidence, that's okay, yep. Or, mm, are we, have we got four in present? Yes. We have four, yes, that's fine. Yes, Stephen. Thank you. Um, yes, thank you. Uh, my point was about the fare increase. Um, the proposal that we have uh, looked at asks for a modest, modest increase in prices, and the modest increase is really to prevent the vast overcharging that we're seeing from some Class C operators. Now, uh, Eamon Corrigan sent then an email to the committee which had some examples of some fares that some of the Class C operators were charging. And there's one great example in there of a fare which was £14 uh, standard, but because of what they call their peak pricing, it ended up costing the customer £60. Now, uh, obviously, that's not sustainable for most customers, in fact, for any customers, unless you're in real desperation. But we've also seen evidence this week, and I made mention to it in the presentation, that we're starting to see these increased prices coming in for uh, Class C operators during the day, and especially for shorter journeys, to try and encourage their drivers to take shorter journeys. So what this is going to mean is, as we have said, the day-to-day the -day, uh, passenger coming home from the supermarket or going to the, the doctor's surgery, they're going to pay proportionately an awful lot more if the Class C loophole isn't closed. And um, uh, it's looking as more and more as if this increased pricing is here to stay. 
Okay, uh, thanks for that. We're, we're just checking how many members we have we're back with us again. Ah, yes, we do. We do have quorum. Members, I'm, I'm told we will lose our ability to to make uh, decisions or, or recommendations uh, within five minutes. So I would propose, if we would ha perhaps some discuss have discussions about what our options are, we can then go back to, to take further evidence if there is further information to, to to see. If we just take evidence today. We're putting off any action for at least a week before we meet again. So, uh, are you content that we'd have some discussions about our options at this stage, members? Any feedback? Yes, sure. Yes. Okay. Sarah, I'm on mute now. Right. I couldn't get okay. uh, the system I, active. Are you, are you content that we we look at our options for uh, what we might do at this stage? Otherwise, we're only taking evidence today, and we'll not be able to decide on anything. Are, you, are everyone content with that? Yes. Okay. So we, again, just to say, we've about five minutes before we we risk losing quorum. Um, it seems to me that uh, there are pressing issues about a shortage of drivers. Uh, certainly, the evidence given this to us is that this will be exacerbated when. Uh, the economy opens up further, and also in particular come um, uh, September when uh, a full range of, of pressures returns um, with, with, with schooling. So, um, are members content that we passed those concerns on to the minister, uh, in particular the shortage of drivers, and also this issue of the overdue fare review, which, whilst no one no one likes to ha uh, pay uh, additional for for a taxi. You still want to be able to get a taxi. Mm -hmm. So, w would members be content that we would write to the minister um, expressing concern about that has been uh, passing on the concern that has been expressed to us about a shortage of drivers and the overdue fare review? I propose, chair. I propose. Is everyone else content that we would we would? Any other feedback from any other member? Chair, can I come in? Yes, yes, Martina. Yeah, Chair, I, I definitely agree we need to contact the Minister, but we're hearing loud and clear uh, from the industry today about the, uh, the crisis that they are in and that the sector needs legislative and policy change. So I think that as well as writing to the Minister, we need to make sure that the issues facing the sector, as outlined very clearly to us today, that the decrease in drivers is firmly resolved. So I would also propose that the committee propose a motion um, on this on the issues facing the industry. We're hearing them all, uh, such as support that they are calling for and the driver shortage uh, in order to try to move this forward. Can we deal with the first issue then, which is to write to, to, the, to, uh, to the minister and the department uh, our members agree that we, we carry out that action. Is, is there an agreement with that? Sure. Okay. Yeah, sure. The, 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 other, the other thing that does strike me, I, I am conscious that it takes time to get on the agenda at, 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 at the assembly floor, uh, and it takes time to bring legislative change. Um, might, we, might we also see if we can bring officials uh, to the committee, if possible, for recess, to, so that that issue gets raised in, in the department. Would that also be an agreeable uh, uh, short, shorter term uh, aspect of, of trying to bring about improvement and highlight yeah, problems? Sure. 
Sorry, sure. I was just going to say that all the, the questions in the briefing, I think, would be good if we could ask the department to answer those and that the operators have, and the, the, the representatives have sent us. I think that would be good okay. as part of that if we could get it and it could be more immediate then. Okay. Chair, uh, can I make a point? Yes. Yeah. Uh, th thanks, Chair. Um, Chair, I mean, we've heard similar tales recently from within the catering sector and concerns of a lack of recruitment. I just wonder if we could refer to uh, the Economy Committee as well, because obviously they have a responsibility around further and higher education and around um, career advice. And I just wonder what the industry itself is doing to try to recruit um, uh, new staff, both in terms of flexible working and in particular uh, for women and, and girls to join uh, the industry as well. And uh, uh, and uh, I presume uh, the pay scales are um, at the very least minimum wage and whether or not there's flexibility. You know, I'm sure some people uh, in terms of uh, able to work um, uh, whatever, 16 hours or less, you know, if there's enough flexibility. And if at some stage, I don't, know, I don't know if they can get time to answer the question today, but in terms of the impact on education, I, I wonder how uh, has the industry any indication of how many journeys they currently provide to uh, education and whether or not any of those journeys uh, and contracts are at risk as a consequence of not having uh, enough staff. I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, Dolores, but I'm conscious we're about to lose quorum. And are we okay now? Okay, I'm, I'm told, told we're okay. Sorry, sorry that I thought we were about to lose quorum. But with another member has joined us. Um, so, does anyone to get anyone from the industry wish to give feedback to uh, Dolores? Certainly, I am conscious that your wish to increase think, the fare structure um, will be one mechanism. Of drivers, most of the drivers um, within the industry are self-employed, um, so there's very few drivers within the industry that are actually employees. So, minimum wage isn't really a factor. Um, but again, the fare structures that are currently there, um, I believe. Uh, is causing the drivers probably to earn less than minimum wage because when they take their overheads from the fares that are currently there at the moment, I would say they're struggling. And I think this is part of the problem why we don't have people joining the industry. I mean, if you take it over the, the last six years, as we've said earlier, with an average of a thousand people leaving the industry net every year, so that's including the ones that go and the new ones that come in, we've had a net reduction. So it doesn't look like it's an industry that people are jumping to get into. Um, we certainly within our company have a number of lady drivers who work for us. We encourage lady drivers to join us. Um, and uh, certainly we are out promoting to get people continually. We have radio advertisements going uh, probably 40 of the 50 weeks a year trying to get drivers into the, into the business. But we're shooting into an empty room at the moment. I mean, it really needs a serious, serious change in what, what is um, actually happening at the moment before we can attract people there. And our problem always is that you can't bring anybody into industry until they're probably 24 because of insurance. So a lot of people have decided their career path before they get to that age. You know, but we need to really make it a more attractive industry. It's going to seriously affect the overall economy in Northern Ireland if this continues and it's going to really hurt our tourists that come into the city. And what you've got to remember is tourists can go to any city and they don't want to end up going to a city where they can't get a taxi to go to the airport or go to a restaurant or get out of a restaurant. You know, they can go to Manchester, they can go to Liverpool, they can go to Dublin. 
you know, they don't have to come to Belfast, so we want them here. Sorry, Sharon, can I come back on that point about the age 24 and insurance? Yes. Uh, whether or not there has been a, have been ever any negotiations, I presume with the British Insurers Association, and whether there is any, um, nobody can do the advanced driver course, are, are there any schemes that could be done? And, and is age 24 universal across all EU, or is it just here? And, and the other bit is in terms of uh, drivers having to be self-employed, I mean, that doesn't, uh, always encourage many people, you know, they like a secure job and a secure wage. Presumably, there's a hybrid model with some taxi operators, uh, direct employment. I just wonder, uh, do, do you see a greater uh, retention amongst the direct employee versus the self-employed? And is that something that the industry might then consider um, harnessing more direct employees? Uh, as not Within our own company, I mean, we have drivers who have worked for us for 20 plus years as self-employed. Um, they, they, like the, they like the self-employed model because they can come and go as they wish. You know, we have no rules, no regulations. The driver can come out and work five hours in the morning. He can go home and he can go to the gym or do what he wants to do, come out in the evening for a few hours. So it gives them a lot more flexibility to do what they want. Um, and I think most taxi drivers, I mean, there are a lot of co uh, companies in the more rural areas who do employ drivers as well. So there is a bit of a mix and match within the industry. But certainly as far as insurance is concerned, you can get insurance for a taxi at probably 21, but it'll cost you seven or eight thousand pounds a year. Um, even, a, even a 24 year old driver at the moment is paying between three and four thousand pounds a year for insurance. And again, all of these things have to be taken into consideration when they look at the fare structures. Again, just trying to um, come to a range of options for decisions. There have been some suggestions made, so can, perhaps can we go through them committee uh, one by one? Uh, Liz Kimmins has suggested that we uh, pass on the, the concerns that were issued to us in writing by, by the industry in terms of their brief uh, and seek a response from, from the department. Uh, are members content that we would do that? That agreement? Great. Great. Okay. Um, and then, uh, uh, as well as taking that written response, there may, uh, I'm suggesting we should perhaps see if we can engage with officials to, because if, if we do that directly, um, you will reinforce some of these points and perhaps come to speedier outcomes. So, are you content that we should uh, uh, seek uh, to have some officials? come to the committee, if it is possible, between now and recess. Agreed. Agreed, members? Okay. Agreed. And then uh, the final suggestion that I've heard uh, made there was from Martina, is that we should uh, seek a debate in, in the Assembly. Do you also wish to do that at this stage as well? Chair. Sure. Chair, can I get in? I haven't been yeah, I'm, able to I'm, I'm open to anybody who wants to get in. I'm, I'm simply asking the question to each member, all members. Um, Chair, I mean, I'm making that because we, okay, I can appreciate what you're saying about getting in the officials. Time and time again, we've had officials in front of this committee and we've been asking about sector specific schemes. And we've heard from officials, they, they say that the sector can apply the other schemes and we talk about the part B of the coronavirus business restriction support scheme. And as you've heard from Eamon O'Donnell, in my own constituency of Derry, not one operator 
that I know has been able to avail of that scheme because the department didn't provide a sector specific scheme. And I think we're going to, it's like Groundhog Day, we're going to get the officials in and we're going to hear the same things over and over again. And it's not going to change a button of difference or an outcome for this sector and that we are hearing today alarming information that this sector is in crisis. This sector needs support. And not only that, our constituencies and our community and our city centres need the support. Our hospitality need this sector to survive. This is going to have a knock-on effect on schools, on businesses and everywhere else. So I think in no way are up against the time frame, but I do think because I'm dealing with another issue in terms of a committee motion, we could get it on the committee, this side of it going into recess, so that we put it on the agenda, we get the minister into the uh, into the assembly, and the sector hears us making representation on their demand in the floor in the chamber, because I just feel that they, they, at this stage the officials have a measure of us. They're coming in and they're giving us the same answers to the same questions, and nothing is happening. There's no change or no support being given to this sector and it's absolutely outrageous at this stage given that we are being told today about the crisis that it's facing our society. My question to members is are, are you content that we would seek to have a motion uh, in the assembly? Um, I'm just looking at the logistics of that. I think we will probably have to just limit the time frame. Would you also be, if, if the answer is yes, would you be content that we would, uh, the, the clerk would circulate a, a possible motion to seek agreement so that it can be put on uh, next week's uh, 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 business committee's agenda for consideration? Because I'd be fearful if we wait, wait until next Wednesday that we would be out of time. So, uh, can we feedback yeah, from members? Yeah. Are you can, is that agreed? No. Right, no. sorry, you want to speak, Dolores? Yes, Chairman, I would re refute much of the accusations that Martina continues to lobby at the Infrastructure Minister, uh, even though she's been given the answers time and time again and is using it uh, as a political football. But I, I really think we should hear from the officials first. And I do think it should be drawn to the attention of the committee. As members know well, uh, the, uh, you know, the employment and, and job creation and tourism is a matter for the economy minister. I'm, I think that the officials should be brought before the committee and the questions that the industry representatives have raised should be answered and given a fair hearing. And, and indeed, the minister could be invited uh, as well to attend. But there's only two, I mean, let's be real. The, the business committee has already decided what the business is of the assembly next Monday and Tuesday, which leaves only the following week. Uh, before summer recess, and any motion uh, would fall if it wasn't timetabled the, the week after next. Chair, I, I support the proposal for the motion. I think there is still time to get it in. If it, it's very urgent, and I mean, I, I, I disagree with what Dolores has said there because the, the representatives we've had today have said themselves that they don't feel they've been supported by the minister. So, I mean, it's not just. Uh, political reps saying this, and I think it's, a, it's an important issue. At the end of the day, the, the fair structures and all of that are are set by this department. So um, I, I support the proposal for a motion. I'm, I'm speaking to members at this stage. Are any other members wish to make a comment? Um, I, I mean, I, I fully appreciate that there is very limited time, uh, but I, 
this committee is in the hand of the members, and it's up to you to decide. Um, uh, but I am, I am highlighting that we will, if, if you wish to try and have something um, debate in the assembly, uh, there, there is an uphill task because first of all we have to finalise the wording, and then we have to get it agreed by the business committee. And there may be practical uh, issues that prevent us. But is there, uh, is it the wish of the committee? And do we still have quorum? So does the committee? I think we still have quorum. Yes. So does the committee wish that the clerk uh, um, circulate a, a possible motion uh, to try and reach agreement um, between now and the business committee? What is your view, members? I need all members to express a view. I've heard views expressed from I think three so far. Uh, George, have you any view on that? Time's getting short, Chair. We're going to need next week and the following week. It'll be very, very doubtful whether we get a motion or not. I, I, I agree. It'll be very doubtful if we get one or not. Um, what is your view? Should we try? There's there no harm in trying, Chair. Okay. On the basis of that, uh, it's clear to me it's the wish of the committee that we should try. So we will ask the clerk to um, reflect on the views expressed here and come up with a draft motion uh, to be circulated to members. Okay. Do I need to formally record? Yeah, yep. Okay. Uh, agreed. Um, are there any other comments that uh, I see some of our guests? Uh, wanting to intervene at this stage, somebody had a. Is that Eamon Corrigan? Yes, Eamon. Uh, yes, Chair. Um, just to go back uh, a couple of minutes ago, Dolores mentioned uh, about the impact on education runs coming. You know, uh, what 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 sort of impact is it going to have? Um, there's another important. Uh, factor relating to that now because there seems to be some sort of confusion between Department for Infrastructure and Department for Education on this issue with Class C licences because um, I have uh, I've done a Freedom of Information with Department of Education who to date haven't, uh, haven't responded to the, the question, how many Class C taxis are out around the country uh, doing taxi education runs, going on to, going on to school grounds and, and home transport? And they're not able to answer for some reason. They are able to tell me how, how many Class A taxis and, and Class B taxis, the highly identifiable taxi that every taxi should be. But it's quite concerning that... In Northern Ireland today, our school children are being picked up by unmarked taxis, unmarked saloon-type cars, operating under this Class C license. Now, five, six years ago, pre pre the the uh, implementation of the Taxis Act, you would never that would never have happened. It was always a requirement doing work for education board that all taxis had to be highly identifiable, obviously going on to school grounds and school property. And it's a sad state of affairs that we're here today, knowing that X amount of Class C taxis, and I could, I could guarantee you there's easily three or 400 Class C taxis going in and out of schools every day, 
uh, not unmarked cars, let's say. Now, quite, quite, it's quite important when you take that back to roadside enforcement because they can't find these cars on the road to see who's driving the car. Is the car insured? Is the car up to standard? Does the person driving the taxi who's out ferrying the school children back and forth from schools, do, do, do these people have a taxi license? And quite frankly, a lot of them don't or a lot of them have the contracts and pass them on to somebody else who is not cleared by Department of Education to do that work. Now, so Department for Infrastructure have now said to me that Class C taxis cannot be identified on school property, but yet Department of Education today are advertising school runs for coming up in September, the procurement, and they're being told that they are going to identify education vehicles with signs. Now, that is against the regulations of the Taxis Act. So one department saying one thing and the other department's doing another. So it's quite a serious problem we have there as well. Our, our members uh, contend that we'd also add that to our uh, written inquiries to the department to seek further information. Um, and also, do we pass through the Education Committee, uh, contact the Education Committee on this issue so that they uh, would be aware? Um, do, can we write directly to the, the Department of Education? Okay. Members can contend that we'd also write to the, the Department of Education and copy in the Committee for Education on this issue. Are you content? Okay. Um, members, I, I, I myself am getting the stage. I'm shortly out of time. Um, uh, we have discussed this issue widely. We have made a number of decisions, uh, and I hope that our um, uh, our, our guests who have given very strong evidence today are, are content with that. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I am going to have to leave shortly. And as I'm the only one in the building here, uh, I understand the meeting will have to come to an end at that point. So uh, uh, can I thank everyone for presenting their evidence uh, 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 and assisting the committee uh, in this area? Any final comment anyone wishes to make? Uh, Okay. Uh, so again, thanks, Thank thanks, Thank Stephen, Eamon, and Christopher for, for, for your evidence. Okay. Thank you. Members, can we move swiftly on to our forward work programme? Uh, it's at page 141 in the pack. Um, it's the draft forward work programme for uh, sorry, the, a draft forward work programme for after recess will be included in next week's meeting pack. Uh, Anyone any comments? Are you content with that at this stage? Yeah, that's okay. Okay. Any other business that anyone needs to raise urgently? Liz? Just a quick one for last week in the Assembly, we had the statement from the Minister on the road resurfacing issues. Um, and obviously it is a very serious issue affecting a number of constituencies across the zone. Due to the, you know, the, the hold up with resurfacing works. Can we, as a committee, get maybe some more information on this issue? For example, just how much investment was initially planned for the areas that have been delayed? Sorry, can you repeat just that? Sorry, I didn't hear you. What did you want? Sorry, it's just on the re road resurfacing issue. Would we be able to get more information from the department on this? Like, for example, how much investment 
that was initially planned for the areas that have been delayed. I think there was four council districts um, outlined that are can't go to can't get tender um, to, for contracts for resurfacing. So just if we could get more information on that based on the statement from last week. Okay, seems reasonable. Members content. Okay, uh, agreed. Um, we then move on to date, time, and location of the next meeting. The next meeting is to take place at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, the 30th of June, uh, 2021, in Room 29, Parliament Buildings. Uh, and other than that, I've said I've to advise people to maintain social distancing, but I think you'll have no problem doing that today. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Okay. The meeting is adjourned. Okay.